I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil, speaking with Jonathan today. Jonathan? I always ask people this to sort of gauge uh, where their frame of reference is, but prior to that day, uh, what did you know about the subject of Bigfoot? I didn't know anything at all. I, Growing up, I would just hear the word Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. That's all I knew of it, just the word Bigfoot. I didn't know what it was, where it came from or what it even meant. Sure. Okay, so I guess leading up to that particular day, what were you doing? So I was in a church camp. Uh, My parents sent me off to a church camp in Southern California, in the Santa Monica Mountains area. And it was a five-day church camp. And on the fourth day, fourth or fifth day there, um... Which was which is a week that usually kids are sent up there. Uh, I was I was basically camping and and uh, with a bunch of kids and they had given us this free time uh, to basically you know hike around the camp. I can actually hear a little bit of music in the background. <laughs> so if anybody wonders about that, who's listening to this. Uh, Jonathan has a neighbor who is playing some music, so that's what's going on. We're not we're not having an, a little background session going. Okay, so you were you were on the fourth day of this camp, and and what was going on at, at that particular day? So this is the fourth day of the camp, uh, day before we leave, and um, after the counselors there had us do our our activities for the day, they gave us um, three hours of what they call free time, basically to just run around the camp and, uh, you know, do activities, basically do whatever you want, you know, sleep, anything you want, you know, that's, that's the word free time. So I decided to take a hike to these, uh, to this rock pool that we had actually previously gone that week. And I decided to go alone. And uh, it's about a three-mile hike from where the camp is. So I was, uh, I was hiking through the woods. I was going down this trail that led to that rock pool area. And through the whole way, it was basically foresty. Um, a, a, lo- a lagoon on – I just ran across one lagoon. And then before getting to this rock, there's about – there's an open field there that uh, – that you got to go through and then trail goes through this open field and and back into the forest and about a mile or half a mile from there is a a rock pool it's the rock pools out these natural rock that you can basically uh you know 
kids uh, jump in them from the boulders. Uh, you just you know take a dip and pretty much come sure. back. Um, and that's what that's where I was going. Um, before I get to uh, the field, I don't have a, a visual of the field yet. But before I get to the field, I uh, I hear what sounds like like English being spoken, but you know just you couldn't understand anything. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm thinking, okay, well, there's uh, there's probably people out there, you know, it sounded like a picnic to me, something like that. Right. Um, so I I'm not understanding. I figured, well, I'm, I'm still too far, but I know some there's people over there, or what I thought were people. So as I'm approaching um, this field, I start to have through the trees. I start to see um, this open field. And these voices are getting louder, but but I'm still not understanding what's being uh, what's being said. So I'm like, okay, I'm rubbing my ears. I'm like, okay, well, there's people over there. I'm it's probably some of my uh, campmates down there, you know, doing an activity. And uh, as I'm approaching, I know that this is uh, this is not. This doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound normal. And I. I start to have uh, a visual of, of what's over there, but I couldn't make out exactly people. I see what looks like two two dark figures, um, black figures to be exact. How far away do you think they were? So I'm approaching the field. Um, they were they had to be some forty yards away, forty or forty five okay. yards away. I see what looks like. Basically, two two apes, little apes, um, mm-hmm. running around. But I couldn't make out. I, I could see arms and legs, but I couldn't make out any any facial details. Yeah, but these things were dark. I mean, black. If you look at your iPhone screen, that's how black it was. Um, and at one point, now I start seeing. I start going through the trees, but I'm not. I'm not introducing myself. I'm like kind of staying okay low. Hidden, you know. I want to see what this is. What this is, and uh, I see. I see at one point one of them stand up and actually walk. They were, they were actually on all fours uh, prior, and one of them just stood up. And when I saw that, I'm like, okay, wow, this is uh, this this creature or what I'm looking at is is definitely something not human. Mm-hmm. So I decide at this point I'm I'm confused. I'm. Uh, I was 15 years old at, at the time, so you know, I'm, there's a lot of things going through my through my mind. So I'm I'm confused. I don't know what it is, and I just stay I just stay there. I'm I'm in shock basically. I just stay there. I I kind of crouch or lean up against a tree and you know just look at what I'm just trying to figure out what I'm looking at. And at the same time, I I see what looks like a, a crouched. Uh, dark figure not as black as the other ones but it was it was dark couldn't make out a little bit just a little bit on the outlines of it it was crouched all the way down to the ground and it was half of its body would uh, be behind a tree but it's it's on the other side of the field uh, across from where i'm at exactly across from where i'm at actually so i'm not I'm looking at this thing, and it's on the other side of the of the tree line of the field, um, but on the tree line, it's not in the actual field. It looks like it was it was 
looks like he was looking at these two creatures just rolling around in the dirt. So it's about the same distance from them that yes. you are. Yes. Okay. Um, okay. And and keep in mind, it was it was exactly a, across from me, um, but on the other side, about okay. I would say five yards to its to its right. Um, there is this extremely tall, tall figure, um, man-looking, broad shoulders, um, standing behind uh behind a trunk there was a tree trunk there was a pretty tall tree trunk um but it wasn't it was it was looking west it was looking west it wasn't looking towards the field but this one would pace around actually this one was pacing around um between these two trees so it would come it would come into view then hide behind the tree come back into view so while the other one is still crouched I would say it would be anywhere between nine to ten feet tall, nine feet, somewhere around there. Um, but just broad shoulders, really broad shoulders. Now, at this point, I, I'm, I'm scared. I'm scared because I don't know what I'm looking at. I don't know what this is. I'm, I'm shaking the whole time. My hands are just sweaty. My palm, it was hot that day. It was I would say in the upper 70s, almost almost low 80s. So it was a warm day. Um, it was clear skies, very sunny. So I have a good. Uh, I'm having a good view of what what I'm looking at. The uh, this is in Southern California, um, in the Santa Monica okay. Santa Monica Mountains, to be exact. So you're you're pretty shook up at this point, not knowing what you're looking at. Did you ever get a sense of were they aware of your presence? I don't think, do think? they were aware because I was. Uh, I was I wasn't up to the tree line. I was about so I'm I'm about forty yards away from this creature, so I'm about five yards away from the tree line. Um I don't think they were aware. Or at least I hope I don't think they were aware at the time. I'm looking at these things for about ten minutes or so. Um after that I start hearing what sounds like just heavy footsteps behind me. Um they, I hear footsteps, and they start getting louder. They start getting more, you know, of a thump to it. And it's, I know it's approaching me. And I'm like, okay, well, so I know something's coming. And, and, and I'm scared to death to even turn around, really. I'm, I'm just really shaken up right now. Um, I, couldn't, I, didn't, I couldn't decide whether to run or, or what, because I really didn't want to get spotted by these things at this point I, I i know for a fact these this is not a, a human being this is not a, a play or or nothing this is i'm out i'm three miles away from my camp or almost three miles away from my camp where i haven't seen anybody at all um mm-hmm. so i'm thinking okay well what's coming i'm i'm hearing footsteps and they're getting louder and they're getting heavier heavier you know how at one point, as it started getting closer, I could actually feel the vibration in the ground. That's really close. close. And behind me, behind me, this, the forest, the, the trees were still kind of thick. The forest was still kind of thick. Then it starts, you know how it starts thinning out as it gets closer to an opening? Like, right. So I, I decide I have to hide. I have to do something. I can't just stand here because I felt like I was 
at that one point I felt like I was I was being searched for or you know I felt like prey I felt so like minimal I felt so I felt like prey I thought I was thinking to myself too um, so mm-hmm. I hide in this on my left there's this really thick brush um, fallen tree and like with a lot of overgrowth on it and um, and really really thick about five feet tall and so I decide, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna hide in this in this brush, um, and I just I actually crawl. I don't walk to it. I actually crawl to it because I didn't want to be seen by by whatever you know was across the field or in the field. As I'm crawling into uh, this thick brush, um, I, I start hearing the footsteps just getting closer. I start hearing um, breathing, heavy breathing. And uh, and it's just getting closer, but it's it's not approaching me at a fast pace. It's approaching me at a at a slow pace. Um, and mm-hmm. through this brush, I have been opening. I could probably see. I'm I'm on I'm on the ground, so I could probably see two feet um, straight. So I'm crouched basically, and I have a I have about a half foot opening through the brush, and I'm able to see about two feet off the ground only. That's that's really all my visual because I I really got in there. Not much. Space Not much to, space for vision. For vision. Correct. Um, but I, I'm still able to peek out, and I know for a fact that I'm I'm in there really good. So I actually covered myself up, and because you know you get this feeling that okay, this is not. It's like a, how can I say this? It's like a um, instinctual uh, reaction that I had to hide. It was like a natural instinct sure. that I just I just reacted normally. Um, and growing up, I used to always, uh, I used to always play hide and seek with, with my with my cousins and siblings. And and in the brush, I'm there sitting for ten minutes. When I see another one of these things, this is number five. So this, this is, is number creature five, number five that is that was approaching me this whole time. I'm thinking it was at, at the beginning. I thought it was a person, but no, this is this is creature number five that's approaching me, and I have. A very good visual from its, its, I would say its waist. Not so, no, not so much its waist, but you know where your uh, insection begins. Insection, yeah. Um, down, and I hear it coming. I hear it coming, and and I I, I hear this like heavy breathing in the air. I could hear it breathing. Mm-hmm. I could hear it like 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 sniffing, like if it were some sort of a. You know, dogs sniffing, like, you know, your dogs sniffing the air and right. you're looking for something. I hear doing it and I'm scared to death. <laughs> I, I'm so quiet. I'm, I feel like I want to run. I feel like I want to just, you know, do something to, to, right, the flight or flight mechanism. I just want to get out of there because I know. Get out of there. Oh, at least I, I, I felt like it had spotted me because it stopped. That stopped in front of me, twenty feet in front of me, almost to where I, I originally stopped to uh, see these creatures when, when I came across. And it stood there, and I had a very good visual of it. I mean, this thing was, this thing was really tall. It was about, I would say, from what I could see, I would say about eight feet tall. Um, its hands were were very low to about its knees kind of kind of with its knees right um, mm-hmm. and 
it stood there, but it didn't stand there like like we do, you know. Um, it st- it stood right. there with its knees crouched, you know, like uh, knees were bent exactly. Knees were, the knees bent, were bent, all the way bent, but they had a, a bent to it. Um, it would it would twist around like if it were um, like if it were looking when it was sniffing. It's twisting around like searching mm-hmm. the area, like. He probably knew I was, or something was there. Some sort of human form was there. He couldn't figure out where I was. He couldn't figure out um, where you were. And I'm looking at this thing, and he was standing there for a solid five minutes. The hair on it was, it was mostly gray. It had some. It was mixed with brown and black, mm-hmm. mostly brown, but with gray hair. You could definitely see the gray on it. Looks like it was aging. Um, sure. But the hair would come up to its hands, but would not cover its hands. So it would probably come up to like its wrist, and the and the and then the hair that yeah. that that was growing would pretty much cover all the way up to its uh, to its knuckles, I would say. Um, and same thing with its feet. Mm-hmm. Same thing with its feet. It's huge feet. It would stop at the ankle and then like fall over the upper part of its feet. The hands were uh, were not. They they kind of had a human form to it, but they didn't have uh, their thumb was very different from ours. It, what was it? Did it look opposable like it ours? Is, not or was it more like a, at all? Like say a gorilla or a chimp's uh, thumb? It was not opposable at all. Like like okay, we right. have. It was more like you said, gorilla chimp. Um, you know how you off like your four of your mm-hmm. fingers are straight, pointing like nails are pointing one way. Well, this thing was right. was like that. Basically. Um, a little shorter than the rest mm-hmm. of it. I'm just um, lower at the wrist, actually. It was it had a really odd shape to it, but it had it, it had what uh, looked like fingernails too. It, I did notice that. Um, okay. It didn't, right. you know, it didn't have claws like like other people say. No, this this did not. Right, right, and, and I would offer that you know. Being that these things are another species of primate, they're going to be very similar to all the species of primates, and I think all the species yes. of primates have yes. males um, have claws. Primates, primates do tend to be relatively closer to human-like uh, features, um, so I could identify the nails on them. Right, right, and the and like I said, the hands they were hanging really close to the knees, um, so it was like dangling its hands, you know. The the feet itself would be a little, I would say, a little longer than what was on the hands. Um, but it would it would it, it was kind of strange because right at the lower right at the ankle it would it would be a little longer because I guess it hung over its foot, and mm-hmm. above the knee, above sure. the knee section it would be shorter than that. So it was just patches really that I was able to make out. Um, Okay. And like I said, some some gray patches here, some more gray, some brown. It was it was a mix mix. Like it was in like it was in the process like of changing. I, I would say more aging. Like you said, with age. Um. Yeah. So, <laughs> I'm I'm looking at this thing. I try to close my eyes. I'm rubbing. I I try not to make movement at all because I knew for a fact it knew I was there, but couldn't find me. Um. Then after five minutes, it just you know just walked away, and I was terrified. Well, I didn't know, I didn't know what I, I saw. I didn't know what I saw at all. 
I know I knew it was some sort of creature, not human. Some kind of hairy monster. <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, I think I did beside myself. It, it, there was a re- very, very like thick, um, just negative energy in the air when, when it was approaching me, and when I saw it, predatory feel. Exactly. Almost a predatory, predatory feel. Predatory feel. To him. Um, and I couldn't explain. Like I, I couldn't explain to myself while I was still in the brush for about forty-five minutes. After twenty to forty-five minutes. So this thing left and around that long, or while I was still in the brush, I could hear, um, I could hear a scream. So after after it left, about ten minutes or so, I hear this thing scream very loud. The, I would say the same one that was near the me because it sounded near you. Sounded uh, uh, really okay. really closer to me. Um, how would you describe the scream? Is it, it is was it similar a, to anything, so any other animal you've I, heard before? I kind of feel like doing it, but I know it's... Oh, go right ahead. I mean, yeah, we've had, I've had people okay, well, try to imitate it. Actually, some have done a pretty good job. A low tone and just high-pitched at the end. Um, mm-hmm. Very high-pitched. So it it would ha- actually have like a growl to it at the beginning, to be honest. So it'll go something like... Something like... Right. something like that and then it'll just get high pitched um, but started okay. out with the growl and in it it sounded like it was angry you know like I didn't know what, why it was angry but it sounded like it was angry so I heard that twice I heard that the first time after it left about 10 minutes or so I actually was ready to get out of there I figured well, this thing, sh- I didn't hear anything around me. I decided to, all right, well, this is, it's now or never. And when I jump out, when I jump out, well, this thing, I was, I, I jumped out and I just, I just ran about 10 seconds after I ran. I hear it again. But before I actually jump out and I run, I actually have, I, for some reason, I still t- I turn around, and lo and behold, that figure, first time the eight foot eight foot tall one or nine foot tall one that I saw across the field, was still there. That was yeah, the only one. Was I saw. that the only one of the, the group others that was weren't still there, there anymore? Um, but this one was still there. It was I could see it was still kind of behind a tree. But I just get a quick. I just, you know, you just jump out, you look back, make sure, and that's when I see this thing still there. And I believe it came from that one, that second sure. time. You know, one of the things we found out um, that I found in the past year is, especially with, and I'll get back up a little bit, there was another account very similar to that. It was an old Bob Titmus story. And if you know who Bob Titmus was, uh, he was one of the early pioneers of the whole subject of Bigfoot. And in the Bluff Creek area, actually fairly close to where uh, the Patterson film was taken, uh, about three years prior to that time, he was in a situation where he was out at night in that area and decided to kind of hunker down because uh, he didn't want to get injured trying to go through the brush with no light at night back to his camp. So he covered himself up with some brush in a low spot except for his face, and, and one of these things came through about one in the morning. It did almost exactly the same thing. It was fairly close. It was sniffing there. It knew that there was a human there, but not where. And, and apparently this one, you know, screamed and threw a tantrum and tore up brush and trees and 
and then left about daylight and uh, his description was it looked like a bulldozer had gone through the brush uh, but um, so it's kind of what they do I mean they they don't like human presence if they're in a place where you know you happen to be there and, and sort of catch them off guard which is rare but it does happen uh, you know and I've heard this a few times before where you know they'll they'll sniff the air and and then the scream the scream is usually um, sort of a warning you know that there's danger in the area and, and you were the danger <laughs> I know you probably didn't feel yeah. that way but uh, that's that's the way they view us so so after I get out of there I, after I just you got out of there I right run now. about two and a half miles straight to camp I, I I would say it was my fastest time ever I made it there in like six five five or six minutes it was I just ran ran the whole way I um I didn't look back at all really I was I was terrified I was, and what was I was terrified at that time I didn't know what I didn't know what I saw I knew it, I knew it was it wasn't human I knew it was some sort of creature that just you know didn't ever I've never seen or 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 you know didn't know what it was really and I was terrified I was I was 15 years old at the time and did you tell anybody so, that's a very good question. And, and why um, did you keep it to yourself? Let me ask you that. I didn't tell anybody actually at all, not even my wife of uh, eight years now that I've been married to her. I, I just now told her actually. It's something that you feel people won't believe you if you said it, you know. Um, and back then, you know, I was a teenager at the time, and and I felt like if I were to say something, I would just sure. be looked down on. I would people wouldn't believe me. I'll be laughed, ridiculed. I, I just didn't feel like it was you know, people would believe me. Basically, and so that's why I decided to just you know keep it quiet. Sure, and 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 I can understand that because you know I, you know my first question was you know why would you keep it to yourself? You know, obviously you know you see something that's you you have no idea what it is. You know, if especially if you didn't know much about the subject. Um, I mean, what do you do? You go tell, you know, the camp counselors or somebody, hey, I saw this, these bunch of hairy monsters out here in the woods. Uh, and, you know, and when you think about it, it's sort of like, yeah. well, you don't want to say that. I, I know from my own personal experience, uh, when I was 14, we found footprints. And our, our buddy's father, you know, he was uh, he, very matter-of-fact about it. He took pictures and measurements and all this stuff. And he told us what he knew it was, you know, back in 1972. And we were like, "Ooh, wow!" You know, I went home, told my parents and sisters, and I got laughed out of the house. So <laughs> I wasn't going to say another thing after that. Oh. You know, especially a little less than two years later, I ran into two of these things, and um, you know, at that point, I wasn't going to tell anybody in the family. Uh, so yeah, and and the reason I I, I so speak I now is because that. you know I, now I I find out that there's actually people out there like yourself that take this subject very seriously and and I just I just so happened to, to come across uh, uh, first on the internet but I was I was actually approached by uh, it came up in conversation with one of the clients yeah uh, here in mm-hmm. in, uh, in San Francisco oh really he, he told me he had gone camping and uh, they didn't see anything but they heard a lot of ape-like creatures up in the uh, up in the Yosemite area and I'm thinking, well, when he was when he said oh, that, I was like, "Well, this this sounds familiar." 
and then it just came up and and after that uh, <laughs> he actually showed me a picture of what he thought was uh, a footprint um it was it was just a picture he snapped uh, up there mm-hmm um, and then right after that, well, I said, you know what, I think, I think it's sure. now, now time that I should, you know, tell somebody, you know, share it with somebody. I, I wasn't sure, I sure wasn't going to share it with my client. Um, <laughs> right, right. You know, there, and, and that's the thing I've learned f- over all these years. I've been doing this now for a long time, um, for 43 years. And I've talked to thousands of people over the years, and and I, I like to use this example. It's a good one. Um, I about um, oh, I guess it was probably 1987 or 88. Uh, my girlfriend at the time and, and her kids and I were up, and I, I had been finding tracks. I just started mm-hmm. looking in the area east of Vancouver, Washington, um, after I left the military, and. I went up on this this third trip where we'd been finding prints, Sasquatch tracks in the snow, and I wanted to go up and get some more pictures so uh, and kind of get an idea of what was going on with this particular individual up there. And uh, there was another family nearby. We figured we'd take the kids up and play in the snow, and I'd look around. And uh, they were kind of doing the same thing. And I had my camera hanging around my neck, and, and the gentleman <laughs> walks over, and he says, were you getting any good pictures? And I kind of chuckled, and I said, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and then I told him what I was doing. You know, I couldn't just laugh, you know, and, and without telling him what I was laughing about. So um, he tells me this story and uh, about this large gray Sasquatch they had seen. They were up deer hunting or elk hunting, and it walked right up to the edge of the firelight of their camp and stood there and looked at, you know, half a dozen of these hunters. And then it kind of turned and walked off into the into the night. And just as he was telling me this, his wife walked up and she'd overheard him. She says... And this, now this had happened 17 years prior to that day. And she says, you've never told me that story. And here I, you know, I just meet the guy, you know, within a few seconds we talk and he tells me the story. <laughs> but, you know, that's kind of the way it is. You know, you meet somebody that's had a similar experience. Uh, you won't, it's very difficult to tell somebody else that hasn't had an experience like that. Because it's really hard for somebody to relate yeah. to it that hasn't actually had the experience and and you know what i mean because you've you've seen the things and and i've seen these things and it was very interesting like your description of the hair i I remember i don't remember the hands quite so much because it was there was a lot of heavy shadow because it was right at right at dusk it was almost getting dark and but i could see the light that was coming through the trees uh the first individual in particular because it was moving its foot in the leaves under this maple tree and i remember i could see the foot very clearly i can still picture it like it was yesterday, uh, and the, and like you said, the hair didn't grow down yeah. over the top of the foot. It was actually covering it from a higher position. So, but I was able to see the nails. They were they were human like or ape like nails. There, of course, there were no claws or anything. But uh, uh, it was you know I guess in in terms of appearance, it looked like a human foot, kind of. Very most of the year, I don't know if the climate actually has something to do with that because I've. I've, right. Lately, I've done my research on these things, and uh, some of them are seem to, or sound like they're actually hairier further up north. Well, now you know we do have four different types, and that's something a lot of people don't know about. And uh, and I'm going to be writing about that here in the future. But uh, uh, I have I have some contacts that, and I've talked about this publicly before, uh, that are, and I can't say too much about them because they're. You know, for identification purposes, they, they could get in a lot of trouble if they were identified. But 
having worked in, in various positions within the government, we'll say, uh, who contacted me over the past couple of years and have told me things, you know, different pieces from things they knew, you know, involving with their jobs about these things. And one of those was that there were four distinct types, uh, two major species groups, two subspecies in each group. Um, and, and there's some very distinctive characteristics uh, physically and behaviorally between the four different types. So um, that, that, I'm sure that accounts for some of those. I mean, I, I had a good friend uh, who's since passed away, Bobby Short. Um, we discussed, and that's what got me thinking about that, and, and before I was contacted by these people, we'd talk about our, our individual encounters, and uh, I could never reconcile the differences that she talked about with what I saw yeah. as opposed to what she saw. But since she was a good friend, I, I didn't want to, you know, have an argument about it. <laughs> and I, I just kept it in the back of my mind. Then when I found out this information, um, that fit very cleanly into the, into the, my thinking okay. about there being the, the four different types. So she saw something that was different than what I saw. Yeah. And I, and I think, and then of course, you know, you get some, you get some characteristics that are different, of course. Um, you know, you're going to have differences yeah. within a species because not every every animal or, or creature in a species is going to be a cookie cutter of the next. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Like like with people being, you know, everybody. Yeah, definitely. Just you know, we all we all look human, but there's there's particulars that make us individuals. You're going to get d- different breeding populations, you know, from one area to the next. So there's going to be some. I think there's going to be some characteristics that are different, uh, just because of that. You know, especially you know if the gene pool's not. Um, till I would say late last year when I, you know, when I told you I actually uh, I brought up in the conversation with my client and uh, I decided, you know what, I'm 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 going to take my time to look into this because it, it it sounds something like what I what I saw when I was a kid. It's yeah, exactly, and and the particulars of your account, I have heard a number of those particulars in several other cases over the years. So. Um, when I decided to look into the area that that I was in, which was the Santa Monica Mountains, that's basically it's basically uh, four wooded wooded areas in the middle of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. um, and that's surrounded by by communities all around, and um, you know not small communities. Sure. It's the LA area you're familiar with. It's it's a very heavy area down there, a lot of population, um, and as I was looking online, just you know, to see if, if any any other sightings uh, were taking place. Check the history. There's not a lot. There's there's several in the uh, in the Big Bear Check area. The history out right. Yeah. Um, and there's a, there's a, there's a couple in the Angeles National Forest and right. and the other one that's the uh, Pablo. I can't remember. It's it's right. the biggest right. one there. You know, in the in the Angeles. Or in that area east of uh, L.A., uh, the Ange- Angeles National Forest, I believe that's where Eric said one of our one of our members, one of our uh, team members who lives in that area, actually had uh, an encounter in that area a number of years back. So, and I, I didn't realize myself there was that kind of terrain until I went to that area to do a. Um, there's a lot of rocks, a lot of boulders, and uh, huge boulder. It's it's big country for for where it's at. And I just I just recall right, reading right. over one account, um, precisely in that area, which was a uh, was a man. He was 
I think he was building or restructuring a, a bridge in the area when he saw one across the bridge looking straight at him. And this was back in 1989, I believe it was. Yeah. There, there are some strange stories from that region, um, all, all the way back to um, the 1880s, 1890s. Uh, not a lot, but periodically there will be you know, an account. Uh, and I can think all the way to the 1960s, 70s. You know, uh, periodically there'd be, I, I remember one off the top of my head, that, and I can't remember exactly where it was, but it was in a place you would never expect something like this. Uh, and it was a couple who was in their car and, and parked, you know, doing their, their thing one evening, and uh, uh, this thing comes and attacks the car. I mean, and, you know, they drive off, you know, feeling like they barely escaped. Uh, and of course, it left, you know, scratches on the car and some dents, and, you know, that that's enough to... Uh, you know, shorten your uh, growth by a couple of years <laughs> if something like that happens in the middle of the night. But, uh, and you know, we find that these things are in places sometimes we don't think they would be. Um, but the the other thing that kind of uh, bothers me about it, that I didn't see any, any, any genitalia. I couldn't see, I couldn't tell whether it was male or, or female. I wanted to more towards the male, but from being around, like I said, the original pioneers of the subject way back in the seventies, uh, and I remember, uh, like Canadian author John Green, one of the when I first met him, <laughs> you know, I, I was I was a seventeen year old kid, and, and like you said, you know, when you're a teenager, you're, you know, things are funny that probably shouldn't be funny, and and you're impressionable. So uh, I was ushered into the travel trailer where Green and a couple of local uh, mm-hmm. residents were talking about this subject. And this was during the Puyallup Screamer time in, in the Puget Sound area of Washington. And uh, that's exactly what they were talking about. So I was, you know, as a, as a teenager, kind of amused and appalled at the same time. That this was this was my introduction to this world-famous, you know, Bigfoot hunter. And they, they were talking about Sasquatch genitals. So, but, you know, the the joking, you know, the teenage joking aside... Um, legitimate reports, and there are lots of them, you know, and even my own, you know, for what I could see at that particular time, and I, and I did see another individual, you know, years later in the, in the late 80s. Um, you don't see the genitals um, because, you know, probably because yes, uh, and typically when primate species, they're smaller than humans. Humans are sort of a little different, um, you know, so it, it's not unusual to not see especially male genitalia uh, with the females, you know, of course, it's a little different. But yes. with primates, and especially with humans, you can kind of tell, if you see the whole creature, you can tell something is male or female by the center of gravity. In other words, if if the if uh, the bulk of the weight is, let's say, above the halfway point, it's probably a male. And if it's below that halfway point, if you're looking from the feet to the head, you know, uh-huh. you divide the creature horizontally in half. Uh, you know, if the weight is more around the hips and such, like when you look at the Patterson film, you can tell you can tell that's a female from behind because the center of gravity, the weight is lower than that halfway point. So that's one way to do it. But as far as you know, genitalia, that's not something that's. Uh, and I and I think even in humans, you know, because that's one of the places in our bodies we still have or retain a, a fair amount of hair. You know, and I, I think that's probably, and I remember anthropology professors talking about this many years ago, that 
that might might have been you know uh, for protection from that area you know more right. hair cover would Some be sort of less likely to be damaged right. you know on a, on a tree branch or you know if you're rolling around or something on the ground um oh yeah because it was covered with hair i i could definitely see um like a, a bulk behind its, its foot not i'm right. sorry it's its leg what cap is so I, you could definitely see muscle but the outline, the hair would um, sure. outline. It's like with a with a calf muscle. That. I could definitely tell. I could definitely see like the end, sure. the bottom part of the of the bicep. Uh, I could see that that part and and with hair covering it. The skin coloration, um, it was very, I would say very brownish. Um, then some areas light brown, and so at its hands, it would be it would be like lighter mm -hmm. and like lighter dark if that makes any sense. And at its feet, it would be a little darker than that. Um, and but with the hair on it, sure, I don't know whether it was like dirt that was covering it all up or certain points, kind of like an ape, -like, you know, more more ape like. So. As it waved its hands very, um, very straight, like very, uh, like it just moved its whole hand basically when it walked away, and it just it, it walked away in one step. Well, it just walked. It I would say close to disappear. It just took We're one step forward and, forth and like it just or? out of view. Oh yeah, yeah. It was yeah. It wasn't very. I, it wasn't very big field, so it. And it didn't make a lot of noise, actually. Uh, when well, it sure, and you away. didn't have a real big field of vision anyway. So it just took one step forward, and and that was it. Because I heard directly coming down from where I was because of the, the trail where I was coming from originally. Um, that's probably why I heard these very loud, you know, I would want to say earth-shaking steps. I, I'm not sure if it was because it knew the the other ones were there. I'm naturally right. stealthy. And I probably did know the so, others were there. When I, I heard this thing, when I heard this thing come my way, I I crawled. I didn't walk to this brush. I crawled. I was already low to the ground, <laughs> and I actually crawled. So I I didn't step. Uh, I didn't make any noise crawling really. When when it came into my field of vision, it, it stopped. That was a, that was a strange. Probably part a good thing me, in that, that situation. Like it knew it, I was there. Um, or knew that something was there that was, you know, out of the norm. Um, so I was terrified the whole time. Well, it was it was a very terrifying experience. First of all, because I didn't know what it was or what I was even looking at. And yeah, I knew it wasn't a bear. There's not. There's no bear down there actually. Exactly. Yeah, you there's don't no want bear. some big bear there's coming only, up on you. I would you say or mountain lion. That's that would be the predator that's the roams down there. But there's no bear at all down there. It knew I was there. Because just the sniffing in the air and the breathing, the breathing it made, it was it was, you know, like how we breathe through our mouth. But it was taking very uh, deep breaths and and let it out in a growl. It was actually making noises. And, when it, and probably because, like I said, it sort of sort of raspy was, sounding. Then, or I was there and I could, just couldn't find me really. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I got the impression of very upset because of those sounds. And I, I didn't have any any view of its uh, of its upper waist, let alone its face. Oh my god! Um, 
I was very vulnerable. Now, of course, we can only so, speculate, but what do you think it's? What do you think it, it would have done? I, don't, I really, I can't, I can't say what it would have done. Um, it, it would, I would say, it would probably, we would probably both be in shock. Um, but they were very, very jet black, um, and um, so the, the little ones were, you know, they, yeah. it, it was like if it was just, you know, right, you know how right. you got felines, uh, you know how they play around, or you see dogs play around. I would say that that would, that would be like that, just you know, horsing around, playing around, and that would be all they do. They'll they'll stay in one certain sure, spot. They're and they were actually closer. Just general appearance, would you equate they them ran more and became more to like chimps? Chimp that, that's why that's why it kind of threw me off when one of them got on, on two. Okay. Did that I mean so they yes. they ran and, and behaved more like chimps would? Exactly, and and um, I, I a lot more of a chimp behavior. Yeah, you're wondering what are chimps doing out here in, in Southern California? <laughs> that's uh, they did make noise. That's where I was hearing that broken. Did the young ones ever make any noise? Exactly. That's what I was hearing, and I believe it was it was coming from them because they were the ones what sounded like um, a, making like a more conversation, noise, but uh, at a distance where you can't make out what what the words are. I don't think the other two on the other side of the field were. They just looked like they were observing, and and the sure they were playing and being noisy and correct. I know the one that was crouched down um, was observing them for sure, making sure probably the youngsters were. Keeping out of danger, I, I think it's reasonable because it didn't make any movement. I mean, um, I mean, again, of course, we can only movement. speculate that, but based on your observations, uh, I, I think it's so. Reasonable I would, to I would speculate that. it was just observing. Well, today, I think, I, I think I know. Um, I have more. I'm leaning more right, towards right. Sasquatch. Prior to that, I had no knowledge of what I saw until late last year when I actually started doing my own. Mm-hmm. Um, research online as to what I saw and and I, I finally I would have some cl- I actually feel like I have some closure now as to you know what this was what my experience was and and you know for people who are listening who may have had an encounter and haven't told it <clears throat> I found this many many times and, and from people from just about every walk of life you can possibly imagine mm-hmm. uh, and and typically if the ones who want to remain anonymous, it's because of a job or, or whatever. And, and you know, a person's name or location never has to be out. Um, you know, I, I've never found a need to tell anybody's name or where something happened. But, you know, it's, it's very therapeutic to allow them to, or to give them a platform like this one to be able to talk about what happened. Yeah. And, and usually with myself having had, a couple of these experiences too. It, it helps to be able to sort of put pieces in place. Um, correct. And, and yes, it, correct. It, it's it's very helpful for other people because then it, it sort of makes them feel like it's okay to come out and say what they experienced, sort of get it off your chest. And and I've had people who are like in very high, you know, financial positions and, and positions of authority and stuff who've told me that I've never never even aired their stories. Uh, where it was a huge relief, you know, because you, you, if you, especially if you don't have any knowledge of the topic and, and you have this experience, it just sort of eats away at you for, for years sometimes uh, until you can talk to somebody that's had a similar experience. And then it's, it's sort of like this release valve. And I'll mention it. My, my website is williamjevening.com. Uh, 
and if everybody you know if you haven't been there go take a look at the website we're going to be constantly adding things to that so uh, and we do a weekly blab chat that's uh, it's about it's about our own people and our in our network we have a, a network around the country uh, at the time of this recording <clears throat> we have 31 states or 32 states represented and teams all over the country so in Canada so um, and it's about legitimately going out and doing research and and, awesome. uh, and of course the goal of the Jevning research group is to resolve the issue that's that's our two-word mission statement is issue resolution so and we do take it very seriously and uh, definitely stay in touch with us you know and uh, yeah, again thank you so awesome. much right on. I've got right a team on. in Southern California I can definitely put you in contact with them and and they're all professionals ex-police uh, and such so we we have some good people there thank you will well listen thank you again I'm gonna go ahead and wrap this up In Bigfoot History, near Jackson, Montana, October 1960, Dr. Joseph Feathers, Western Montana College of Education, wrote me that Dean Stanton found bare human tracks 17 inches by 9 inches in the snow about 15 miles south of Jackson. He tracked him 300 yards to a rocky slope on the mountainside. They cleared a windfall 4 feet high without breaking stride. Welcome back from the break, everyone. You know, it's funny, kind of non-Bigfoot related, but in a way related. I, I was sitting here before we started this session listening to uh, some music I have on the computer, and I have a lot of MP3s in there. So, uh, you know, how everyone, you, you listen to a song, and, and it'll take you back to a certain time period, right? And uh, it made me think about how uh, my psych courses at WSU, they, they talked about how if you have two or more of your senses involved in, um, you know, in an experience, it will bond that to your memory a lot more. So that's why, you know, a lot of times we hear a song, you know, from our past, it'll, uh, it'll trigger certain memories much more clear than it would have been just trying to recall something from say, you know, looking at it or listening to something. But, you know, of course I was listening to, uh, Hey Jude by the Beatles that came out in 1968 and it took always takes me right back to 1968 uh, when we lived on the Puyallup River and, and it kind of helps sometimes to re-examine things so in, in the light of re-examining things we talked about uh, in the midweek show for those who listen to it um, the Albert Austin story and and Tom and I had done and so a bunch of research on sleeping bags you know aside from the fact that Renee DeHendon told me the story he felt was made up because the details kept changing year after year and not just the details there were the major portions of the story but uh because Austin himself when asked by john green stated that he wouldn't testify to the details of the story uh that's a little i mean i understand you know some minute things but when major portions of the story change that's kind of a red flag but that aside when you look at some of the particulars and the reason I want to hit this is because it's important you know people just read a story and they like the story so instantly that's set in stone in their minds but you got to look at details sometimes and, and there are current stories 
you know, that uh, I can think of one from 2012 that uh, is promoted as a real story. But when you look at the facts behind the story, the details surrounding it, it proves it's fake. And I won't go into that, but, uh, you know, sometimes you can, you can look at details of a story. And uh, especially if those details requ- are required for that story for it to be legitimate, and you find out they're fake, then the story's fake. So looking at Ostman, when you look at the sleeping bags, and that's a impor- very important part of the story, because he had, he says in his words, he had his pack with his cooking tins. Now cooking tins would not have been aluminum back in those days. They would have been steel of some kind. So as Milo, you pointed out before we started, that would have been a little bit of weight. More totally. Than, more, I mean, that... Yeah, go it ahead. It could be cast iron. You know, it It just... <clears throat> he's going to run... He's going to slowly pack all that up and then take off. Yeah, I think in, the, in those days, a lot of that stuff might have been tin. <clears throat> okay. So it wouldn't have been super heavy, but still heavier than aluminum. But anyway, that aside, he had all this stuff in the pack, his rifle or in a sleeping bag, and he's packing the, in the sleeping bag with his food, uh, the rifle, his boots, had a knife on his belt. Um, you know, it just, and he supposedly was picked up like a bag and carried off for miles. Now it's up and down slopes, dragged on the ground periodically. You know, folks, sleeping bags in the 1920s didn't have zippers. They had buttons or snaps. Uh, they were little more than a bedroll. Tom, you want to, you, you did some research on that. You want to comment? Yeah. And, you know, the ones that I saw, uh, the majority of the ones that I found, I even found one going up to 1935, a U.S. Army. Matter of fact, that's the one that I posted on the, uh, you know, for the picture for, for Bigfoot in History for, for that episode. It was, it's basically heavy canvas, but it was straps or snaps. And so as soon as you hit the ground with that thing, you have no padding whatsoever other than maybe a wool blanket. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it, it's, uh, and that's why I, on that show, on that episode, I just comment. I said, yeah, this is a great campfire story, but it's really nothing more than that. And my understanding is he actually, um, you know, he 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 was very cavalier about the whole episode. And right. Will, you and I know that when you have an experience, a real experience, face to face with a Bigfoot, it's years later for the rest of your life. It's not a cavalier recalling. Yeah, you're you can tell the story, but you know, almost always there there's a certain amount of emotion involved involved with, especially the closer the contact the more emotional it was. So, oh, must be dogs in Milo's house. <laughs> so anyway, you know, I, I thought it was important since there's so many people that make a big deal out of stories like that, you need to do, do a little bit of homework on those stories and question those things. There, there are certain things, um, you know, it's... Um, it's very important to look at those details. If you're going to believe a story, then the details need to support that story. Otherwise, it's really called in the question. Yeah, and I and, and I would love to talk to Renee DeHinden and find out what details changed over time because that is that's an indicator. You know, when the story changes, 
you know, liars have to have good memories, <laughs> and <laughs> well, they usually don't, especially over time. And and that's a big part of it too. I mean, um, sorry, I'm, I want to look up um, some of the comments for the show once we get rolling here. But um, you know, I, I just thought sometimes you know people commented that the, this is one of the big stories in, in Bigfoot history compared to Patterson Gimlin and things like that and it nowhere near compares to that because if you look at Patterson Gimlin it's like you know our, our friend the judge pointed out you know like in uh, court of law uh, there's a big difference between the two on one side you have just a witness testimony on the other hand you have witness testimony two witnesses you have film footage and you have physical evidence in the way of footprints big difference between the two and when you look at the testimony in one situation the Austin case um, the facts don't really hold up very well especially you know the sleeping bag people think oh that's a simple thing sleeping bag it's a big deal because it was the basis of him being carried off having all these things to be able to make his escape with and that's another point you know the sleeping bag couldn't have been too stout because he comments that he rolled it up and put it inside this pack and that it was very light and along with all these cooking utensils. So yeah. that's my two so, cents. <laughs> well, I agree hundred percent. And, and again, it's a campfire story and that's it. That's all it is. Right. Absolutely. So moving on, we'll do some questions and I did want to kind of go through some of our comments on YouTube and, you know, acknowledge our listeners out there. It's been a been a while since we've done that. So, fellas, do you have questions you want to start with, or should we go right to the um, uh, comment section? Well, we'll jump in. I, before we do that, I just want to tell everybody uh, we I want to say thank you for your comments, your questions, and please like, subscribe, and share. And it always generates an interesting conversation. Okay, and so if you want to support us, we've got a link for Patreon in the description. We've got some air noise going on. What's going on, that fellas? Oh, that's probably my heater. <laughs> <laughs> it's been snowing. Uh, okay, so we were on questions. Actually, oh, go ahead, Tom. You were going to start with a question. Okay, so I've got one. This is Danny in the Southern Sierra, and Danny says, say the stride of a Bigfoot walking a flat stretch with a reasonable footing is 48 inches. Um, so, and he said he understands it's the difference between step and stride. Okay, so the step is 48 inches. What would that lengthen to when it's ripping up uh, like Usain Bolt? And, you know, what I think what he's asking here is how far, you know, how, just how big of a uh, stretch could that be? Well, I've read accounts where, <clears throat> and from witnesses also, where they found where the creatures were running, and there could be as much as 20 feet between the footfalls. Of course, that's and I'm not good at math, but 20 feet means that's, big. That's jumping and things like that. Yeah. So let me. What wanna, about if it's okay. walking? Uh, I know in your. I think it's in your second book, the the field guide. Mm-hmm. 
uh, you you go into you're very detailed on step and stride and how to measure it. Why don't we uh, real quick just tell our listeners uh, the diff- <clears throat> difference? Like when you're measuring, it's you got to go same foot heel to heel, or how does that work? Okay, <clears throat> a little clarification on step and stride, folks. For those who may not know, <clears throat> and it's a big difference. Step is the distance between two consecutive footprints, a left and a right. Stride is the arc swing of the same leg. In other words, it's the distance between, let's say, a right foot or a left foot to the next right or left. Okay? So it's measured from either the base of the heel to the base the base of one uh, heel of one track to the base of the heel of the next track. So that gives you steps. So if you're going to measure step, and a lot of people do this incorrectly. They call it, they're calling the distance between two consecutive footprints stride. That is not stride. That is step. And a lot of times they're just measuring from the end of the toe of the one track and then to the base of the heel of the next track. That's an incorrect measurement. For the correct measurement, it has to be from heel to heel or toe to toe. Uh, and the same with stride. And you need to measure at least three of those to get an accurate average. Hopefully that clarifies that. Yeah, and you know, it just occurred to me also that it's going to be a little bit different because their morphology, their physiology, is different than ours. It's similar, but you know, because they 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 generally walk on two legs, but their proportions are different. Besides the size of the creature, just their legs and all that are is different. Right. I want to make. Go back just a bit since we're talking about um, comments on YouTube, you know, and, and acknowledging our listeners. This is a good one uh, from Lord Hytro. He says, I believe Mr. Osterman was telling a good yarn. His story is said to have taken place in 1924. It is likely most gear available at that time would have been U.S. military surplus or standard wool blankets. World War I ended in 1918. Prior to World War II, American soldiers were issued blanket rolls. This consisted of several wool blankets and a ground sheet to roll it up in. Each soldier had at least one issued. In cold climates, as many as five blankets were issued to each man. These were combined with the roll, a shelter half, uh, which could also be used as a ground cloth or with another soldier to make a tent. And Milo, you and I know when we first went to military, we were still using kind of that system. Camp. Although we had sleeping yeah. bags, but we had shelter halves that went around the sleeping bag and combined yeah. with another guy, you could make a tent. Uh, let's see. Let's see. The blankets had, and such items, excuse me, the blankets and items such as socks and underwear all were folded into the roll, following a careful defined procedure drilled into soldiers in basic training. For sleeping, it was unrolled and made into the best arrangement for the conditions. During the early part of World War II, the pre-war blanket roll continued to be used. The same situation as well, or as with other equipment by 1944, troops were issued a mummy-shaped uh, sleeping bag made of blanket material. This sleeping bag was used with a standard water-resistant case, the shelter half, to create a lightweight and reasonably warm sleeping bag suitable for ordinary infantry soldiers. The material of the bag was the same color wool fabric as an army blanket but a little heavier. These were primitive sleeping bags available from the turn of the century consisting usually of heavy canvas bag and leather straps. With the wool blanket inside, British officers used the canvas bag as early as 1917. The canvas bags were heavy and large 
and would have to be secured on the outside of a pack, not stuffed in one. Keep in mind, most British officers at the time were legends in their own minds. <laughs> uh, they lived in bunkers, eating roast beef, drinking tea while slowly, uh, or while the lowly infantrymen ate rats. I doubt they were carrying those cabinet bags up and down anything, especially mountains, without a horse like Osman claimed. Uh, so, Lord Hytro, thank you for that. That was very interesting. Fellas, you want to comment? Well, I'm, for me, it's kind of like the then came Bronson, the, you know, the motorcycle guy. You, everything was wrapped up in a blanket, and nothing back in those days was confined and compartmentized and specialized like it is today. Yeah, and, and the more we find <clears throat> with information about that time period, you know, it's very, very unlikely Osman would have had anything like a bag to be carried off in with all his gear. Right. And that's why I hit How that convenient. so hard. That's why I hit that so hard because if you're going to make a story up like that, you know, a lot of people when they make stories up, false stories, there's um, there's holes in the story. Right. And a lot of people just gloss over these things because they like the story, they want to believe it, but you got to do a little digging sometimes. It's a great yarn. <laughs> it is, but yeah. You know, I would. It would be more believable if it said, "Oh, he had his." pants on with a pocket knife and his pants and that's all he had right right that would have been more uh, what you know more more of wow dude you're lucky <laughs> <laughs> you know? not all how convenient for him to have all his stuff with him the whole five hours up and down wherever he was and find his way out right right and 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 basically, what he was, what, un he was un you know dehydrated. So you know he was. Well, he did have a water source. He said. Wow. Okay. There was. Um, I can't remember. You know, I don't have the story What's, in front of me, but there was a water source because he was able to make he, coffee. He got sick when he when he heard. Uh, you know, one of those diesel donkeys or whatever the hell that is. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think. And then well, he. Well, he says it might have been the grouse that he ate. Yes. That's what I. Yeah. Why? Was it gamey when he found when it was dead? What? <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, here's what I want to do I want to turn this around yeah. and look at it from the perspective of what we know with Bigfoot behavior and how many times have I mean my, it's just preposterous how many times have they are there documented or credible instances like this uh, typically when they grab somebody um, you know it's it's you're done for that they, they don't bother carrying you off for miles and miles uh, they're gonna smash your head in or, and you know you're, you're done and it's a lot easier to deal with somebody that way I would presume not being a Bigfoot myself but um, <laughs> I'm shocked Tom to hear that <laughs> I know I know so again you know great story Albert good story but uh, you, know, you missed your calling you should have been writing dime store novels well, and, and that's a good point Tom I mean the creatures you know when we look through all the all the witness accounts 
you know, there isn't anything. I mean, they always do things for a very specific reason. They don't think they don't do things frivolously. Uh, they're geared mostly around survival and the things that support that. So, but they g- don't have leisure time. No. So to go through the effort of hauling somebody off for miles, what was the reason for that? Right. And Milo made an excellent point. They don't have leisure time. I they think don't. it's doubtful. Yeah, that they would. No, they're they're involved in um, survival. That's what they do. It's a whole shark thing. They eat. They they make baby sharks and they swim. They don't. They don't. Oh, I'm gonna go visit Joe over at at the coral reef. You know, they don't do that. I know. Now people are gonna say, oh yeah, but they they come around and they do things around people's homes. That's all part of kind of ramping up behavior. It's because they're they're approaching something they consider dangerous, which is us, and and it takes a while for them to work up their nerve to do that. So well, that's actually a really good point because they're working up their nerve, and I think what they're doing is they're testing they are. the environment. They're testing that situation because no two situations in their mind are going to be exactly the same. Right, exactly, and, and humans are unpredictable, so... Number one, for them to go to that point, there has to be a reason. In other words, there's some kind of food available, uh, whatever it is they're after, whether it's, you know, pet food, pets, livestock food, the livestock, you know, or even people. You know, it takes them, it takes uh, whatever their mental state is for that particular group to work up to doing that. I mean, there has to be something that kind of lends itself to them, the propensity to do that instead of just staying out there away from people. But even then, if they have the propensity for that, it takes a while to work up to it. And and you can even you know we we watch these crime shows a lot, and uh, when they when they talk about serial killers, you know almost well all of them they don't just start out that way. Um, well, part of their psyche is, is starts it's kind of geared that way, but it takes years really for them to develop into one, you know, and by trial and error, seeing what works, see what they get away with. These guys are the same way. If they have the propensity for it, it takes years for them to develop the techniques and kind of the guts to do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is kind of interesting and a little bit odd at the same time. You've got this massive creature that could just one-on-one, you don't stand a chance, and yet they still have to develop the nerve. But I think they know that we're we are also very very dangerous yeah that's a big part of it and like i've said before you know i'm sure in ancient history uh there was a lot of interaction between humans and these creatures and and obviously we came out on top and i think our ancestors felt that we exterminated them and we really didn't they just went off to areas we couldn't get to you know when you look at human behavior when it comes to uh, planned out savage brutality. Nobody holds a candle to us. Humans, yeah, humans that's true. take the cake. Yeah, we'll look at the present situation. Yeah, right, exactly. I want to look at another comment on YouTube, fellas. This one's from Chips1066. And they say, As to the lady who was having intense intestines chewed up, and that was during Carol's interview. Uh, as a recipient of intestinal surgery, I will say there are no nerve endings 
in the intestine itself, so her pain would have been from the entry wound, uh, which would have been no less overwhelming. That's a great point. Yeah, I, I read that one. I thought that was a really good point. And, you know, we'd love to, you know, we're never going to get to medical records. I mean, the HIPAA, you know, she's got HIPAA protection. But it would be interesting to, I'd love to interview her and find out. Because this is the thing. They go for the intestines. We have people on the West Coast. I'm tr trying to be a little bit <clears throat> delicate about this, but there are people on the West Coast that we know were taken by these things, and that's what they. That was part of their behavior was going for the intestines. Yeah, that happens. I think with a lot of predatory animals, they go for the soft tissues first. Yeah. Milo, what do you got for us? Oh, I was still, you know, I that whole thing with Osterman. For me, uh, you look at it from 20th century man, 21st century man now. You don't think about the pack and and the sleeping bag. You take it as grant for granted that it is like today. Oh wow. Yeah, and I, as I recall, I think he he even mentioned, I don't believe he was really an outdoorsman because wasn't he on some kind of a vacation when he went on this trip? Yeah, he was on a vacation and doing some prospecting thing, and he went back from, you know, the whole thing with Vancouver and said, I'm not doing this anymore after the interview or, you know, after the event, which is strike me kind of weird because you got a guy who... Did, who hopes this, right? Yeah, and I'm thinking he probably wouldn't have, you know, if he was, it was just a vacation kind of a thing. Yeah. His mindset probably was not like an outdoorsman would have been of having the best gear and, and all this kind of stuff. He would have had whatever he thought he needed. Exactly. Well, interesting. So he was a dime store novelist. Okay. <laughs> yeah, essentially, I think. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I, I that was... Because when I was reading this story, I, I'm going to tell you, I thought it was very cool. It was written really well. I mean, the gut, the, or I should say, the story was told with, ooh, wow, it kept me going. Well, now you know? here's the thing too. Now John Green wrote it down, so I'm sure you know Green, having been a journalist, a trained journalist, probably mm -hmm. wrote it that way. We don't know how the actual telling was. Oh, yeah. Well, that makes sense, too. Yeah, Ostman didn't write the story down himself. Okay. Uh, all right. But I, I, that's what, you know, it got me where, wow, this is very interesting. And then, you know, it was kind of like, now when the, it came always back to the pack that, you know, now that's when it started to kind of repeat itself. Everything, I kept everything in my pack. I camped right by these guys after the five-mile or five-hour track, and he still had all his stuff. Exactly, and again, we go back to the sleeping bag. Would it, exactly. Would it, have, would it have held all that stuff? Probably not. Well, I don't think it would have held up through all of that. No. And I mean durability now. Yeah, even today's sleeping bags are really good ones. Um, you know, zippers can be a problem, especially if, you, if you're hauling a bunch of weight in it over mm -hmm. rough terrain. The zipper's going to give out. Something's going to give out on it. 
Yeah. Well, you know, even now, you know, being an army guy, you know, I that's why I had my punch when my punch aligner. Same I here. never zipped mine up. Same here. I, you know, because those you things. Know, those... I wrapped that in there to insulate me. And then that way I can just pull it out of it. Well, even just sleeping sometimes, you know, we'd be out on, you know, field training exercises in Europe mm -hmm. and, and the bag oftentimes would just open up the zippers would break or what have you or tear and you, and you'd need those extra blankets or whatever inside. Yep. You know, and that's what I, so I was, that part started to get, honestly, that was like that. I wish we, I could have said that before we, you know, really went off on it, you know, that this was a great fallacy. But, you know, I, it, it, that part really stuck with me. Well, back in 1922, it had to been garbage. Yeah, it couldn't have been very good quality. No. Well, I, I don't, I don't think it was the quality as much as keeping everything together intact on such a rugged, fast-moving Yeah, that's the, trip. that's the basis of, you know, saying that it's probably hoaxed because you're right, you know, the integrity of the sleeping container would not have been good enough to keep everything together. And like, no. the, like the gentleman that commented about uh, the detailed information about that, it was would have been more of a bedroll and not what we think of as a sleeping bag today. Right. Well, I mean, look at how now if he was a weekend warrior, okay, um, did he pack his stuff? Because I know when I started out learning how to pack stuff, my sleeping bag always fell. It kind of unrolled itself, you know, right. like trial and error. Well, and this guy. Yeah. Remember how right. it was when we were going like to the Clark oh, yeah. Ranch and places like that? I mean, that. <laughs> you know, you roll, it, it would find a way to undo itself while you're hiking yeah exactly and all his stuff was still intact i man i want i want to learn how he packed <laughs> yeah exactly exactly but, tom okay. what are your thoughts yeah that's that's a real good point and um you know i, I it's 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 pretty obvious this, that his account is fabricated for for a variety of reasons so you know, a good story, Albert. <laughs> well, we appreciate it. And, and, and we contrasted. That's all it is. And again, for those who didn't or don't listen to the midweek show, we contrasted that story, both stories, 1924, the Austin story, and then the miners' attack at Mount St. Helens. And and Milo and I have both been to that location. So, you know, in our, we, in our minds, we have a visualization of what the place was like. And mm -hmm. um, the details of that story were much more in line with all the historical accounts. In other words, let's look at the Osman story. Okay, when he made his escape, uh, the older female pursued him as he was trying to escape, and he shot at it and supposedly made his escape. Well, you know, when you look at what Fred Beck wrote, or actually he had his son write it, but he, he, he you know, worked with him on writing it. Um, when they shot at one, that's what caused their night of terror, the cabin being attacked. You know, whereas, I mean, there's a big contrastor where one supposedly shoots at it and it, what, stops? Usually, yeah. usually shooting at one really makes them angry. 
It does. It would make me angry. Right, which is what happened at the, at the Mount St. Helens incident. You know, they were attacked. Very vindictive. Yeah, they're very yeah. vindictive. In fact, the following day when they went out of the cabin to look to see if the attackers were gone, one of them uh, was at the head of Ape Canyon, and they shot it, and it fell into the canyon. So the creatures were still there. You know, and with Ostman, why didn't they, they pursue him? Mm-hmm. Well, and in the story, it said he only had eight shots. So what was he going to do with four <laughs> of them? Yeah, right. You know, I if I was him, I would say, well, not, never mind. I'm, I'm not him. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, everybody has a different mindset about things, but um, very, very different. Same year, very different situations. Um, mm-hmm. The Austin one, I think, was manufactured the Mount St. Helens ones I think is tr- illegitimate well here's a qu- I wished we would have known more about the guys that were with us did they shoot at one and they all didn't make it on at the Mount St. Helens with the, when we passed those guys oh, on horseback yeah there was and we mentioned that there were some people when we were there we encountered they were hunting and um uh, you know, they, they yeah, found out yeah, later that, they didn't make it. What was uh, the deal on that? You, those guys that were hunting are the ones that vanished? They disappeared? Yes. They didn't vanish. Yes. I, I read that they there was a group of hunters that died from hypothermia. And it did, Which is weird. And it did snow the last day we were there, pretty heavy. Yeah. In fact, we, yep. we thought we barely got out of there. I mean, it was really coming down. And it took two trips to go in and two trips to come back. It did, yeah. So well, that was... And one of the fascinating parts of your St. Helens story it is pretty incredible. You know, the uh, foot footprints and the finding of your keys and wallet. Scott's yeah. keys. And yeah, there were, there were Sasquatches in the area. I mean... You know, here, yeah. here we went in, and it really didn't take, I mean, we weren't looking. <laughs> they found us, but nevertheless. Uh, you had know, no indication. No no zero, indication whatsoever. Right? Yeah, there was no No, we were horsing around so much out there. Yeah, we yeah. were 18-year-olds goofing around. I mean, there was, you know, you get you get six 18-year-olds, uh, and there's a lot of noise, a lot of, you know, goofing off, and that's what we were doing. Uh, but the point that I want to make is so often you can be right. These things can, excuse me, be right next to you and in absolute near proximity watching you. And there's zero indication. Well, Tom, you and right. I know from September when we took the team into Oregon and we were surrounded by the things, at least at least five of them. And there's a group of 15 up there. The other ones are probably not too far away. And yeah. we had no indication until they started vocalizing that there was anything yeah. there. And they were stealthy. Even when we heard little twigs snapping, they were going through that very, very heavily forested area. Very, very quiet. Right, just absolutely. Just a little twig snap. Yeah. And you know, some of I that I think country... we should have all just charged up the hill at them and see what they did. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that, that worked for us once, but I don't know if it worked yeah. again. <laughs> Well, you know, going back to the whole thing with the the shot and vindictiveness to 
oh, I'm scared you shot at me. I'm not going to chase him anymore. To the guys that we had encountered when we were down in Mount St. Helens, and they all died. So, you know, did they shoot one and they, they got scared and they got chased out? Could be. I mean, you know, because again, the creatures were up there. We don't know. Yeah. We don't know where they were. I mean, you know, now going back, that area was really rocky. I mean, there wasn't, you wouldn't have seen any footprints up in there. I mean, it would have been a, a very unusual kind of a situation to find something what's up where the, uh, the site of the, where the cabin had been was, you know, cause we searched, right. we searched around the area. I mean, it was just, there was nothing to see because it was just too, the ground was too hard up there. Um, right. so it's possible that, you know, where this, this group of hunters were, they were farther south than us, um, that they could have been chased out. And I, and I know that area is part of that. Um, you know, Tom, we talked about when I figured out the, uh, the range of that one group, the alcohol group, that was where those hunters were, would have been the Northern part of that, uh, territory. And they would have been up there about that time of year. Interesting. I, I should check that out. You know, where did they actually find these Yeah, guys? see what you can find out, Milo. Yeah, yeah. I will do that. And we'll and we'll talk about that on another show. But uh, So, fellas, let's go move on to more questions. All right, I got one here from Don. And actually, Don is commenting from Bigfoot in History, uh, episode number 10. He says, uh, you know, great show, so I... I Appreciate it. Thank you, Don. His question is, how do we deal with the hundreds of testimonies of wolf creature standing and running on two legs with the rear leg exactly like the anatomical structure of the canine family uh, and not, you know, not like a patty? Um, the face like that of a German shepherd or wolf. Uh, are they all lying? I just don't see how this is possible. Um I guess, here, here's my thoughts first. I would like to see a credible report. There's a few things with this, mm -hmm. okay? Does this creature show up in ancient Native American lore? Because Bigfoot does. Bigfoot's been around as long, you know, when the, when the Native Americans first came into the North American continent, they said these things were already here. Well, and but, look what Tom Seward said. He said, among Native Americans, that's the number one creature in their history. Right, right. So, I uh, and again, the whole the whole dogman thing. It's it's not our thing. You know, we don't study it. I haven't gone out. We haven't gone out. We haven't found dogman. Uh, I, I wouldn't know where to find one. And I think it's part of the reason we just leave it alone because. Um, you know, like you said, well, it's the chromosomes, the DNA, all that. Well, here's a thought that I have, and I, I don't know. I mean, the human mind is a very powerful thing. It's much more complex than people think it is. And it's not, it's not a receiver transmitter for, you know, mind speaking, that kind of stuff. That's not how our brains work, but it does create things. And what I mean by that is you can look at the different things that our brain compensates for and it's amazing what it does uh, and i use the example something it fills the gaps in well it's the things that i, I learned in my psych courses at wsu and they yeah. talked about uh like in our vision 
there's a blind spot. All of us have a blind spot in each eye right in the center. And what our brain does is it'll take the information coming in and it creates, based on the surroundings of what your eye is seeing, it fills in that gap. So part of what you're seeing is actually a creation of your mind and a very detailed one at that where you can't tell the difference. So having said that, um, we're not dealing on a, with a level playing field with people's minds. Okay. Not everyone is identical. Everyone is different. It's that frame of reference and what you're predisposed to believe or not believe. So based on a lot of that, I'm wondering if people aren't seeing a Sasquatch or even a type three Sasquatch, you know, ones with the elongated face, uh, like a baboon and unbeknownst to them, their minds are actually because maybe they believe in werewolves or at some point in their mind, that's in the back of their mind, maybe not consciously, but it's there and their brain is filling in details that really aren't there. Just a and thought. Well, I think it's, yeah, it's also important to note that you, you have mentioned the uh, the chromosomes why you know chrom animal chromosomes it's it's why they can't you know dogs can't reproduce with cats mm -hmm. why you don't get a dog man or what whatever this thing is supposedly uh, it would have to be something you know it's not of earthly origin if it even would exist well I, I see on Facebook a lot of times where people will say. I mean, and what they're what they're alluding to is that they're werewolves. In other words, people changing into this thing. And and I think I don't know. I, I again, it goes back to that psychological component. I'm not saying they're crazy. It's just saying that maybe there's a propensity, consciously or unconsciously, in the back of people's minds who are making these statements, and their brains are filling in the details that really aren't there because our brains are able to do things like that. Imaginative brains. Yeah, creative, <laughs> sure. Well, maybe not yeah, creative, yeah. it's just, you know, our, our brains constantly search for answers to things we pose questions to it. Uh, so, you know, we've mentioned this many times before. You know, it, everybody has experienced this where you'll forget somebody's name or an incident or whatever, an address, and you might go a couple of weeks and then it just out of the blue it pops into your brain. Oh, that's that's so and so's name or whatever. You know what I mean? And it's because consciously our, our brains and they work differently, the conscious and subconscious. Um and it kind of it's kind of a memory thing. It's where, for instance, like telephone numbers. Everyone knows well, I don't they don't know. The reason a telephone number is seven digits long and no longer is because in our short term memory we have seven spaces. And that's why we can remember a seven-digit phone number. But it's temporary. And Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's something, remember, you know, before cell phones, we used to have to do that. You'd have to remember your phone number and other people's phone numbers. Well, you, and, right. Exactly. Your brain was trained to, to remember that. But that's why, that's, why, that's why phone numbers were seven digits long. Because we have that number of spaces in our short-term memory. Wow, I didn't even know that. So the subconscious works very different. My subconscious mind was the subconscious never stops working. You know, the, so the short. So what I was getting around to is with the the conscious mind is is much more kind of a short term thing. We sort of live in the moment and and move on. But the subconscious, in other words, we get a, something comes in front of us. We don't understand it. We ask a question, whether it's 
you know, we formulate the question or it's just like, um, I'll use my own, my own encounter. You know, when I, when I was 16, I ran into those two creatures. It, there was no, no words forming in my mind a question except what the hell is this? Um, you know, but my mind was scrambling for answers. And in, in the in the moment, I was more concerned about survival. Uh, and it wasn't until much later, and, it, and especially after meeting Green and Hinden and those people, that some of those answers or questions were answered. So, uh, but, you know, the subconscious will keep working on a question until it digs up an answer. Now, it depends on the person's frame of reference, what they have in there to come up with an answer for. And... It, it, depending on their beliefs and things like that too um, you know I, I'm sure a lot of those people would rather that be a werewolf than a Bigfoot now here's the other thing I, um, I've i never spoken with somebody who has seen a wolf man and so I don't have a sense of you know when we talk when we interview witnesses with Bigfoot um, or anything for that matter, you, you really can't get a sense of authenticity of the of the uh, of the whole experience right. and whether the person is telling the truth and, and all that sort of thing. So with the Bigfoot people that we talk to, you know, you get the repeating patterns, mm-hmm. you get the you can tell by the emotion in their voice, all these sorts of things. But I've never talked to somebody who has seen a quote unquote wolf man and said man you should have seen you know i had these dog legs and these feet that were just like yeah, they don't shepherd. do that do they? <laughs> I, I guess we'd have to find I somebody and, I... and maybe you know have a chat with them but here's a question too um you know we have we have hundreds of years of history with the sasquatch and their behavior and so we're able to like you said to measure that against current stories um with something like a dog man if it's a werewolf you know a shapeshifter um, if, if they're like in the movies, how come they're not tearing people to shreds, you know, on a kind of regular pattern? Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and that goes back to whether it's a earthly origin. I mean, it's like, well, what do they eat? Where do they live? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do they get to There's too many questions that they even Bigfoot, at least Bigfoot, as strange it is, it is still falls into um, there's certain rules if you're going to live on planet Earth, biological rules that you have to follow, and it falls into those rules. Yeah, it's so, it's a primate, and it had then there's a precedent for primates being large like this one, and it fits the environment. In other words, in the northern hemisphere, it would have to be the size it is to be able to survive out there. Right, right. So, well, there's a good question too, is because when you hear a lot of these things. Everybody's saying it's like four to five hundred pounds. You know that's. I don't. There's no way it would survive at four hundred pounds. You mean being too light or too heavy? I'm too light. Oh no! That people will see people. And there's another thing when they they look at what other people have to say. And originally they were saying the Patterson Sasquatch they estimated around three hundred pounds. Well. You know, there wasn't a lot of thought that went into that because, and I don't know if Patterson and Gimlin said that originally, but that idea came up from around that time period. But when you you have to, again, look at details, like we talked about with Ostman and, and the guys at Mount St. Helens. The, it's all in the details, folks. 
Patterson states very clearly that when they had the they were examining the tracks. Patterson and then Gimlin, they were wearing cowboy boots. Patterson, now he's a small guy, but he still jumped off of a stump landing with his cowboy boots next to the footprints. Hardly made an impression. Then he walked a 1,300-pound horse along the line of tracks. The horse did not sink as deep as those tracks. So the creature had to be more than 300 pounds. Considerably more. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, I want to comment on another thing, and that is the Native Americans have a long, long, long history there is, I saw an interview with a uh, archaeologist who worked for, I think she's worked for the Forest Service, maybe the BLM, but I think it's the Forest Service. And she became a believer in Bigfoot, not because of any evidence that she saw personally, but the fact that she had studied and found over 500 names for Bigfoot from tribes scattered all across North America. Oh, and it's not just North America, it's across the world. Right, right. So, but, and if you look at a lot of the Native American art and petroglyphs mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, there's quite a bit of it that is clearly looks like Bigfoot. I mean, oh, you sure. see things with sure. people, they got stick figures and then they have these huge feet next to it and that sort of thing. But I haven't, I just don't know if there's anything that goes into the whole uh, wolf man, dog man sort of thing. Right. And you, I haven't seen that. No, and you, you kind of have to, you, like, Again, Tom Sood. We should bring Tom on again to talk about that. In fact, we're, I'd like to do... We should. We've talked about that, so we'll we'll talk about that off air. But, um, you know, he addressed Bigfoot being their most important creature in nature, uh, which is interesting. And also, but he didn't mention anything about this other stuff. And he talked about totems, or he had a different name for totems. Um, and I can't remember what it was at the moment, but... You know, fascinating stuff. But yeah, they very carefully recorded this stuff. Well, let's move on, fellas. Let's move on to a different area, maybe. Um, either of you want to jump in with a question? Um, I'm, I'm, sorry. I'm just trying to read more about that Osterman thing. Okay. And I'll get back to it. But I've been trying to find out more. I've been looking on the internet for... The guys that were missing when our, at our time frame when we were at Mount St. Helens. Okay, yeah, it should be. This should be some newspaper references. I'm sure you may have to go to, you know, like the Vancouver Library or something for that information. Uh, Tom, what do you? Yeah. What you've got? Anything else? Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm. I'm just. I'm sort of pondering uh, the area that you and I were at, and the team was there back well, September. I, the weather there a couple of days ago. Drop down to five degrees at night. Yeah, which it's been really in cold. my book, it's darn cold, yes. And we would die if we were out there. Yeah, if you weren't uh, prepared. If we didn't well. have Yeah, exactly. I you, you you hypothermia would get to you. But these things now I don't know if they're up there at that time, but I think they oh, are yeah. at the higher elevations they're, they're up there. in the winter. Yeah, they are and yeah. we, we had actually had confirmation of that we won't go into, but yeah, they were right. up there and, and higher up it was even lower in temperature. It was like three degrees. Um, and and they definitely are there. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, these things survived the ice ages, you know, apparently quite successfully. Right. And so did deer and elk and, right. and other 
creatures that are probably no longer with us. Yeah, the wildlife of North America did apparently, you know, well enough to survive it to this day. So, um, you know, wild creatures can live in those temperatures. Yeah, I just find it. And I've been out, I, actually, I've, I've camped in weather that was negative eight degrees uh, in a tent, and we had a stove in the tent. Had we not had that stove, I, I don't know how we would have done yeah, I, I've I've always camped year round, but you're you know if you're prepared, you can do it pretty comfortably. Yeah, I'm not sure comfortable felt in it was part of the picture, but it was fun. It was it was very interesting. Oh, I know we've we've always had the uh, well, I I used to have one. I don't have it anymore, but because it got worn out eventually, it was a heater I bought at um, oh geez, I don't know if it was Cabela's or where I got it, but it it's funny. The thing was shaped like Darth Vader's helmet. <laughs> In fact, Milo <laughs> Scott used to call it Darth Heater. <laughs> and it wasn't one of those propane. Yeah, it just had a little little canister you screwed in the bottom, little green ones, you know. Get for two, yeah. three bucks, at least back in that time. Um, and you didn't run it all night. What I would do is, and I, I bought this really, it was an oversized, very heavy sleeping bag. It was rated at like, you know, it was rated like at zero. And... Uh, you know, very comfortable to sleep in. So, you know, we had the fire going at night and, you know, all the guys, we had this big cabin tent and crash out in there. And, and I, what I would do is I'd have that heater set up. So all I had to do is reach my arm out of the sleeping bag and, and turn it on. And then, you know, after a half hour or so, it would be warm enough where you could, you know, get up and get dressed in relative comfort. You weren't freezing. Yeah. And very important. Now we had a little stove um, and, the moment we had, you had to cut up because it's a small stove, so you had to cut your wood in these really small sections. And within ten minutes of that wood burning out, you knew it. So it's time to you had to open the lid and chuck a few more chunks in there. But that's just way the, too much work. <laughs> well, and not only that, but there's this little tiny wire and the wire was um i think it was titanium so it really didn't retain heat so you could open it up but when it's dark and you're sleeping it's 2 30 in the morning you i, I kind of use the braille system until you get the stove and then oops, you know <laughs> it's like when we were in germany they had uh if you were lucky enough to be around a unit that used uh they had the gp small tents and i can't remember i, I went into one we happened to be in a situation where we got to get off the armored vehicles and go uh, in the tents for a while. I don't know if it was guard duty or whatever. We were went into this GP, GP small tent, and they had a space heater in there. And from guys who were in the military, they know what that is, this little round uh, stove. Oh, yeah, with the and you remember, gravity. Do you remember those, yeah. some, some of those, I think, were you, they used diesel. Some of them, they put wood in them. But I think it was mostly diesel, wasn't it? Yeah, diesel. And everybody's huddled around because you're freezing to death in this tent, you know. And <laughs> yeah, especially at Graf or Fulda or oh, some yeah. crazy-ass place where the wind just keeps on going through you. Yeah, it might have been Graf. We had, we actually, one time we were lucky, went to Graf, for those who were in Europe, went to Graf and Veer. That's the big, uh, it's a big firing range. In fact, it's, it's, I think it's the biggest one in the world. Um, it's, you know, for tanks, armor, all kinds of ordnance. And... Um, we actually got to sleep. They had a GP, I think it was a medium, but I set up for the whole platoon with cots and everything, and they had a couple of heaters in yeah, there. Yeah, GP and, mediums, I think. Yeah. 
so that was that was the luxury because you know you're out on out on we were out on tank gunnery and that was uh thankfully you know it's funny the tanks all had nice heaters in them the apcs we froze our butts off in them they didn't the heaters either didn't work or they were stolen Bold. a little off target a little off target there but uh so we got about five minutes left left fellas let's uh take on another question if we can well what about the uh the life cycle you you've talked about in the past that you think that they may be uh that they grow quicker you know that they actually uh you know mature faster than we do but do they does that give them a shorter lifespan compared to humans i'm thinking this thing is i'm sorry that's a good question i was told that they're you know their rate of growth is faster than us i don't know exactly how much but they they grow quite a bit quicker um seem to heal a little bit faster that would indicate i don't know if that's a higher metabolism or or what i i don't know but um and we should probably have forrest on to to talk about that because being an anthropologist she would be more familiar you know based on comparative anthropology but as far as lifespan, I don't know. They maybe it is shorter. Yeah, that's interesting. And typically, though, you think of larger animal. The bigger the animal, the longer the lifespan. You know, elephants and buffalo and that sort of thing. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah, I think it, it's. I read somewhere that they were. Um, there was a study about uh, heart rate in some of the the animals that had a slower heart rate. Because it had to do with, like, over the span of a lifetime, there were X number of heartbeats. And and that would kind of determine the length of life for that particular individual or, or species. And I think elephants and some of those other large animals had slower heartbeats, which would account for... In other words, you know, let's say... And of course, it's not accurate, but let's say, okay, over a lifetime, you had a million heartbeats. Uh, if your heart rate was slower, you would live longer. If it was faster, you would have a shorter lifespan, but you both had the same number. And I, I think that's what the study, you know, uh, that was their conclusion. I don't know if it's accurate or not, but that was their conclusion. Oh, interesting. Okay. I like that. That's really cool. Yeah, it was an interesting read. I wish I, I'll see if I can find that article and send it to you guys, but it was pretty interesting. Yeah. And I suppose it has to do with metabolism and things like that too. I mean, it's it's not just a one set thing, but they were they were comparing the number of heartbeats that different species had uh, to lifespan. Hmm. So the yeah, that it's kind of like the whole thing with the dog years thing, right? Their one of their lives is like seven or something like that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's something like that. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure, you know, a dog's heart probably beats much faster than ours does. Uh huh. So yeah, uh, kind of maybe they, yeah. Uh, until I see one, and I, you can count. I go. What do they do for primates to check their age, their teeth? You know, I don't know. Again, I think we'll have to have Forrest on again to discuss some of those kinds of particulars. So I, I'd say maybe jot those questions down and we'll bring her okay. on and we'll kind of go over some of these and maybe we'll get John so, on also, our forensic anthropologist, to talk about some of these very specific kinds of things. And you too, folks, you know, if you got questions about, you know, physiology 
uh, with the Sasquatch or other primates and things like heart rate and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, send them to us and we'll, we'll have those two on so we can discuss that. Oh, absolutely. Has anybody, other than throwing rocks, what other kind of tools do these have imagined them using? Well, that's a good question. We don't know. Now, that's something that's one of John's, our forensic anthropologist, one of his big interests. Because he says that being a primate, they have to use tools. All primates use tools of some form. Mm-hmm. So that's something we'll say for that discussion. We're just a, just about out of time. Any, okay. any final thoughts, fellas, before we wrap this section up? No, well, I'm there's... just going to yeah, I just want to say uh, thank you, everybody, for your questions. And hit us with the hard ones. Hit us with, um, you know, if you have scientific questions or uh, any, any kind of legal questions. Uh, you know, we have people that are on our team that cover both those areas very well. Uh, and just general questions, shoot them our way, questions at creekdevil.com. We appreciate it. And again, be sure to like, subscribe, and share. And if you want to support the program, you can do that with Patreon. we got a link in the description. I wanted to mention, too, you know, I, I'm currently, for a long time, I kind of didn't feel like writing, so I'm back in, back in writing mode. I'm working on actually uh, two or three different book projects simultaneously. One of them is Volume 3 of Witness of the Unknown. Everybody likes, seems to like Volumes 1 and 2. Um, and we get plenty of people that will relate their accounts, but they don't want to do the show. They don't want to talk about it on the on the radio. So um, if you're if you're so inclined, I have about half the number I need for Volume 3. Um, so, you know, if you don't want to talk or, or however you want to present your encounters, if you could do me the favor of maybe just writing them out and emailing to me, you know, and then I can include them in uh, Volume 3. So you can send them to williamjevning at yahoo.com or wjevning at gmail.com. And I'd really appreciate it, folks, if you could. Uh, I need about between 30 and 40 accounts. So I would really appreciate that. Fellas, great chat as always. Everyone, stay tuned for the next segment. In Bigfoot History Kansas, about 1959. Mrs. Nadine Goslin, Topeka, wrote to Roger Patterson that a man going to her grandmother's home at Potawatomi Indian Reserve had seen a real hairy man standing beside the house. He was so frightened that he drove across the lawn, through the clothesline, and across the ditch to get back on the road and out of there. About the same time, a lady plowing a field says she saw a wild man run off into the timber alongside of the field. Welcome. These eight stories are a collection being brought to you by William Jevening and are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story one Sasquatch Story, Sonoma County. California. Sonoma County, California. Just a story. Terrifying screams heard. No sighting. July 1980. Well, I have collected enough information from various Bigfoot sites about screams to conclude that I heard a Sasquatch 
on a bicycle touring trip from Portland, Oregon, to Santa Barbara, California in the summer of 1980. My girlfriend and I arrived at Fort Ross Historical Park, north of Jenner, California, in Sonoma County on an evening in mid-July. We decided to camp there at Fort Ross, as it was marked as a campsite on our map, but it had no campsites. There was no one at the main house, nor around the fort, old Russian fur trading fort, or on any part of the grounds. We rode to a campground further south, but it was too expensive. We decided to ride back to Fort Ross. We camped to the left of the upper parking lot under some Monterey pines next to a picnic bench. We ate dinner and went to bed at around 9 p.m. At approximately 1 a.m., a scream 20 feet to the left of the tent, our heads were facing the ocean, a blood-curdling scream of various sounds in succession that lasted at least nine seconds. It frightened me to my bone marrow. I froze in fear, knowing that whatever made the sound was huge. It was so close, I could hear the tremor in its throat. Since I'm a musician, I realize how much force it takes to make a sound that loud. I've also been camping all my life, and have heard various animals, but this was different. I have been told it was a bear or a mountain lion, but I don't think so. Anyway, my girlfriend said in a whisper, what the frick was that? I started to reach for a flashlight, and her hand grabbed my wrist with a vice-like pressure so I didn't move. We remained frozen, listening to every little noise for an hour. Incidentally, there were sheep running free everywhere, going, Bah! Bah! And they didn't stop making noise when the scream occurred. Finally, my girlfriend fell asleep and I remained on guard with my hands hovering around the tent pole to use as a weapon, thinking that at any moment it would stick its fanged head into our tent. At around 2.30 a.m., I guess, I heard another scream down by the fort in the lower parking area. I figured it wasn't coming back, so I fell asleep. It didn't occur to me the next morning that it was a Sasquatch, so I didn't look for footprints, nor did I hear it walking the night before. This is the end of story one. Story number two. A story from Tehama County, California. Summer, 1977, 12 o'clock a.m. No sighting, just an odd occurrence. Nearest town, Chester, Highway 36 at Lost Creek Road. Willow Springs Campground in the Mount Lassen National Forest. Directions, take Highway 36 out of Red Bluff, then Wilson Lake Road to First Right. The road number is 29 North 18. It leads right into Willow Springs Campground, Lassen National Forest at 530-595-4444. My grandpa, my uncle, and I had been working in the area picking up sugar pine and digger pine cones for about three days or so and had planned on being there for around a week. We were camped in a lower campsite in this campground, just off the main cinder road coming by the camping area. I remember the camp was right next to a creek, and each night we would hear the deer coming down to the creek to water and would occasionally shine our flashlights and see them drinking. One particular night we were sitting around relaxing, and I commented that it was strange that we didn't hear any deer in the creek. In fact, I don't recall even hearing any crickets, 
or any of the usual nighttime noises. There was a group of people camped above us about one hundred yards or so up the hill, and they hadn't been there camping as long as we had. The three of us could hear the people in the camp talking and such. Then it was quiet. Suddenly, someone in the upper camp shouted, Hey! Then some loud talking, and then this growl, scream noise. It was very loud and sounded as if it came from a fairly large animal. My uncle and I looked at each other, asking each other what the heck that noise was. And we looked at my grandpa, who was smiling and chuckling, which I found to be very odd unless it was to cover up being frightened himself. My grandpa was a retired logger from Oregon. My uncle had also spent considerable time in the woods, working as well as hunting most of his life. I had spent a lot of time in the woods, also hunting and working for my uncle, but had never heard a sound like that, nor had the rest of us. My grandpa said he thought it was probably a bobcat or cougar, but my uncle and I had never heard any animal make that kind of sound, not to mention the fact that those animals will most likely stay away from a loud camp and may venture closer when it is dark and quiet. Anyway, while we were wondering what the first noise was, there began a lot of hollering and another loud growl scream from the upper camp. Vehicle doors slamming, and then the vehicle took off down the road, tires throwing cinders. They were out of there but fast. We, my uncle and I, were shaken up, but too proud to admit it to my grandpa. We didn't hear anything else from the upper camp. Nothing. I don't know if they left anything up there, but, or how they were camped or anything, I do know that they didn't come back. We went to bed as it was getting late, and I was so afraid to make any sound, fearful that it would hear me breathing and come into camp to investigate. We left a couple of days later, but I don't recall hearing a deer in the creek in the evenings after that night. All of the information given here is to the best of my recollection. As for the terrain, it was heavily wooded pine forest, quite a bit of brush around the creek area. That's the end of story number two. Story number three. Weaverville, Trinity County, California. A young grocery clerk in Weaverville, Trinity County, took me to a point at which he came upon a light-colored Sasquatch during the winter of 1994. It was not far from Big Bar Ranger Station, where he and his girlfriend used to park and neck after work. Engaged in some heavy petting, they were interrupted by the rocking motion of his Chevy Camaro. They looked around, thinking it was one of their friends or other kids screwing around with them, but the windows were pretty fogged up. There was little visibility. Determined to confront the intruder, the young fellow bounced out of the Camaro, screaming, Knock it off! in a most assertive tone, only to find himself face to face in the pitch dark with a hulking figure he described as a bit taller than he was. Stunned, the kid backed up into the open car door, unable to move. He said the Bigfoot, with his left fist, wailed on the roof of his Camaro, beating it at least three times, but barely denting it. I heard it breathing. Man, I'm telling you, it was alive. Scary, blankety-blank. I heard it breathe. The informant called to his girlfriend inside the car, in what she later described as three octaves higher than his usual voice, 
telling her to lay on the horn. Upon hearing the sound of the horn, the Sasquatch sidestepped, backing away from the car, and stared at the kid. I couldn't see his eyes or facial features, but it was clear he was facing me and looking at me. Even as dark as it was, he was only lit up by the car door light. The terrified kid said he got in the car, locked the doors, started the engine, and did a quick U-turn on Big Bar Dump Road. Amazingly, he said the Sasquatch followed them up the road where it turns onto Corral Bottom Road, keeping pace with the car for several hundred feet before trailing off where they could no longer see it. I spoke with the two informants at J.C. Cafe in Junction City for more than two hours. Their account never wavered, and they still showed great fear in recalling the event. The female witness never actually saw the creature, but said she heard its raspy breathing. It was evidently too dark to get much of a description other than what he could see of the creature, illuminated by the Camaro door's light. He knew right away what he was looking at, but in the shock of the moment, he was able to distinguish little. Responding to my question, did you see a reflection from its eyes in the car light? He replied, there was no color or light emitted from its eyes. There was no smell from the creature, and he could not tell if it was male or female, only that it was this humongous, dark, towering image that he could hear breathing quite heavily and with angry intensity. He said it kept pace with his Camaro to about 20 miles an hour. Then it trailed off, but he wasn't sure of his speed. His girlfriend, amazed by it all, only saw a blurred image through the foggy windows. A happy ending to this story, though. The Amherst couple are now married and expecting twins. This is the ending of story number three. Story number four. Late at night, Canada. In June 1996, chief editor of Animal Watch, Alex Michael, wrote of her encounter with Sasquatch in volume number one, issue number ten, I thought to copy the article here as I found it one of the more chilling accounts I have read, and educational as well. Late at Night by Alex Michael A True Story My family has always been notorious for doing things at odd hours, and as you may well know, the strangest things always happen late at night. It was an unusually warm autumn some years ago, and at sixteen years of age I had just finished a summer job as an arts and crafts camp counselor. The only thing left to do was pick up a rather large trunk filled with my belongings. Unable to fit such a large trunk inside the VW Beetle I had purchased just a few weeks before, my mother was volunteered to transport it from the mountains back to the city in the larger of the family cars. Summer camp was a very wild place for me, with staff partying every night until the wee hours of the morning. My room was near the entrance of the staff residence where all these parties took place. By late July, sleep-deprived party wimps like myself were weeded out, so I built a single mattress-sized platform in the woods and then covered it with polyplastic. Bow Valley Provincial Park, an undisturbed protected forest, was only a stone's throw away. 
It is there that my mother, a small dog named Willow, and myself were going to retrieve my trunk at three o'clock on a Monday morning. Why three in the morning? Well, I could say it was the heat, but it was mostly because my father had not yet been told that the car would be leaving town. There was also my adolescent fear that knowledge of the platform construction would somehow reflect itself in a summer paycheck I had not yet received. My mother had to be at work by 6.30, so we had less than an hour to complete this covert action. As we approached the highway turnoff, a sliver of the moon cast a glowing border around southwestern Alberta's Mount Yamnuska. Driving several miles along the gravel road, the camp looked deserted. Summer staff had cleared out several weeks before, and a handful of permanent staff were either taking days off in the city or asleep in cabins several miles from the summer campsite. Angling off on the side of the road, my mother left the headlights on, pointing into the trees. There was some discussion about taking the 20-pound dog named Willow for protection. However, Willow's track record for wandering off severely threatened a successful completion of the mission, Plus, very uncharacteristically, the dog named Willow now refused to get out of the car and was partially hidden under the driver's seat. Car headlights were of no value after the first few seconds of meandering through the forest. We had a flashlight, but I was having difficulty remembering the exact location. The 15-minute walk turned into a 30-minute skin-scraping bushwhack, but finally we arrived at the isolated platform even though the flashlight batteries were now dead. I assured my mother all that needed to be done was to take down the polyplastic rain cover and carry back a mattress and the trunk. It should only take two trips. She was noticeably silent as we began working in the darkness. My mother began untying strings, securing the poly to the ground, and I was kneeling on top of the four-foot-high platform, stretching up to reached some tangled binder twine knots tied to a tree, a pungent smell suddenly flooded the air. My eyes moved from the knots to the tall length of plastic. There, distorted through the semi-transparent poly, was a huge shadow only about seven feet away. With the four-foot platform and me kneeling on top, the creature was easily at eye level. A split second later, there was an incredibly loud screaming roar. Although I know of nothing to describe it, the sound was like a peacock scream, a bear growl, and a lion's roar, all somehow combined. I can't tell you if I screamed. I can't tell you much of anything, other than my eyes continued to peer through the plastic at this massive shadow. My five-foot-three-inch-tall mother had somehow leaped into the air and was now up on the platform beside me. Whatever it was finally turned and walked slowly away on its long behind feet. We continued watching as each heavy step could be heard contacting the ground. There were no visible ears, just a sparse mohawk-like fringe sprouting up from the tapering top of the creature's head. From behind, the upper body appeared massive. It continued to walk upright until disappearing into the trees. We stayed on top of the platform, motionless, for some time after. Then, finally, I started ripping down the plastic. I have no idea what my mother did during the next forty or fifty seconds, but my next memory was 
power walking through the forest, balancing a single mattress on top of my head with one hand and carrying the handle of the trunk in the other. I assumed my mother was holding up the other end of the trunk. With Willow still hidden under the driver's seat, it was a very quiet drive home. Late at night, they say that your mind can play tricks on you, but I am so certain. Brown bears had been in the area that summer, but I have never seen a bear walk upright that smoothly for that long a time. Or could it have been a very large, long-furred man standing over seven feet in height? I say man because intuition tells me that the creature was a male. Could it have been a Sasquatch that night? I will never really know for sure, but you can bet that I will keep telling the story, as if it were. This is the end of story number four. Story number five. Logan Lake, British Columbia, Canada. Nearest big city, Kamloop. The informants, a man and his wife, were not too far from me camping in the summer of 2000, and during their stay they were experiencing some rather frightful events. The reason they contacted me was because they had come across my sighting, and because theirs happened so close they wanted to talk to me. They were camping for two weeks, and during this time their food was being taken and even some clothes were missing. They thought maybe coyotes or even bears but one morning, after hearing something in the campsite during the night, they woke up to find everything tossed around the campsite. Even the guy's boat on a trailer was moved a few feet. One night in particular, something hit the side window and broke it, and in the morning they found a large rock sitting there in the dirt. On another night, they said it sounded like a few people were outside their camper mumbling. Jill said it was like someone had their mouth full of food. I pictured the Sasquatches eating all their food and trying to talk to each other. After that morning incident, they cleaned up and had breakfast, when Jill had noticed bare footprints just off to the side of their camper, and they said it was obvious to them by the size of the prints that the visitor during the night had to be a Sasquatch, nothing else. They said the prints were around 18 inches long. The man put his size 12 foot inside the print, and there were still five or so inches more in length. They told me that a couple days later they were out in the boat fishing and actually saw this thing in their campsite while they were out in the boat. Apparently it was throwing their stuff around and making a mess of things. The couple described the Sasquatch as a reddish brown with long arms and a funny shaped head. They believed it to be a male because of its bulk, size, and height, which they say was about seven to eight feet tall. I asked if it could have been a bear, and they both replied, As God is our witness, what we saw was a Sasquatch. After describing the arms, legs, head, and all, there was nothing else it could have been. Personally, judging by their body language and the way they were trembling while talking to me, I believe them 100% no doubt whatsoever. The older couple said they waited in the boat for a while until they were certain it was gone, and as fast as they could they chucked everything in the camper and left the area, only packing up properly when they got to the town where they ended up staying that night. The couple were in their sixties, very clean and neat and polite, 
I can't see these two spinning a tail, because it's been almost six years since that time, and they preferred not to be bothered by it. The sighting area is no more than a 40-minute car ride from me, and it's exciting because I've actually heard of another sighting in that area, but I didn't pay much attention to the person at the time, but now I'm going to try and track him down to hear what he has to say. I'm wondering if maybe there is a Sasquatch, and it could still be in that area. Tim Martindale, Merritt, British Columbia. This is the end of story number five. Story number six. Teapot Hill Hiking Trail in Cultus Lake Provincial Park. My name is Sunel Hodzik, and today, December 12, 2012, at approximately 3 p.m., I was hiking with my dog up Teapot Hill Hiking Trail near Cultus Lake Provincial Park in the Fraser River Valley. The nearest town would be toward Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canada. On my way down the trail, I was changing my music on my iPhone, not really paying attention to my surroundings, when I noticed that my dog, Lila, was barking like crazy. She was about five feet ahead of me and staring off into the distance, so I stopped and looked ahead when I noticed something in the bushes about fifty feet ahead of me. I was so scared that I froze and just kept staring at it. After about a ten-second stare-down, I switched my camera on and quickly took a picture. Meanwhile, my dog is still barking like crazy. I then picked up a rock and threw it in the direction of the thing, and then I quickly turned around and ran back up the hill. I waited about until I saw someone else coming down the hill, and I followed him closely behind all the way down. So I do believe I saw the Sasquatch or Bigfoot that day. If I could describe it, I would say he was about eight to nine feet tall, very hairy and big. His skin color was brownish. His face was something like a monkey or ape. I took it with a full zoom on my iPhone 4. He was about 50 yards away from me. He's in the middle rightish of the picture. Only thing I noticed really was how he was standing, looking at me. It had a long face but bigger forehead with long hair starting from about the top of its head. Sonel Hodzik, Chilliwack, British Columbia. That is the end of story number six. Story number seven. Letter from El Paso County, Colorado Springs, Colorado. Summer, 1991. To whom it may concern. After reading some of your stories regarding Bigfoot... I thought I would add something I have kept rather a secret for quite some years. I was a cadet at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado, back in the summer of 1991. I had been at the academy for only a few weeks and was finishing up basic training when it happened. Now, the academy itself sits on the foothills of the Colorado Rocky Mountains. Basically, I could step out of the cadet area and I would be standing in the mountains. There's plenty of brush, trees, and so on to conceal just about anyone of anything you want back there. Anyhow, one night, about 9 p.m., my roommate and I were laying in bed chatting about our upcoming campout in Jack's Valley, an area just beside the academy where we did a lot of field training. 
when we heard what sounded like a woman screaming her head off. It was absolutely horrific to hear. What was most interesting was that prior to the blood-curdling noise, we could hear the other cadets in their rooms talking and joking. The campus was basically shut down for the night, and everyone was getting ready for the next day. I remember the ambient noise being rather loud. Then this scream came. All of a sudden you could have heard a pin drop, it was so quiet. I turned and asked my roommate if he heard what I and everyone else had just heard. I know, what a dumb question. He looks at me and says, Oh yeah, that's the local Bigfoot. I couldn't believe it, but of course, I heard it. He then proceeds to tell me about a buddy of his who saw a big hairy human drinking at a local lake. When it saw his friend watching it, it stood up, turned away, and walked into the forest. Of course, the next week in Jack's Valley, for me, was a very nervous affair. I was more worried about getting up at night and walking to the latrine by myself than I was running the assault course. Well, I just thought I'd add my two cents worth. Please withhold printing my name from this email if you decide to post it. Thank you. That's the end of story number seven. Story number eight. Lake Christie, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. My story. I don't even know where to begin. To this day, even the thought of what I am about to tell you makes every hair on my body stand up and brings tears to my eyes. Why the tears? I don't know. But they are genuine. I have never discussed this with anyone, and hadn't planned to, but after stumbling across your site, I think I've had a change of heart. I live in Ontario, Canada. It is probably for this reason that I have never said anything until now. To my knowledge, almost all Sasquatch sightings are along the west coast on the continent and along the Rocky Mountains. I don't know how many sightings have been recorded this far east, but I know what I saw and heard on a few separate occasions. I used to work at a scout camp in northeastern Ontario. It is in a very remote location, nearly an hour's drive from any civilization, and one of the only true scout camps in all of Canada. It is surrounded by lakes and large hills of dense forests on all sides, and there are a few cottages scattered here and there around the main lake and camp that it's stationed on. Lake Christie, if I remember correctly. Although I live far away from this place, I work there every summer from 1996 to 1999. My first experience happened in 1996. I was 16 years old. As a counselor, every two weeks we were moved around and put in charge of different scout and cub scout groups. I guess so everyone gets a chance to work with groups of all ages. On this particular rotation, I was working with one of the senior scout groups at the camp. As part of their last week there, they had to partake in what was called a solo night. This is where each camper is driven by one of the assistant camp directors to a remote location and left for the night with the bare necessities to survive, a sleeping bag, rations for one day, 
and two, strike anywhere matches. It was on this particular night that I will never forget the sounds that I heard. It was late at night in August, I am not exactly certain of the time, and I was sleeping in my tent in the upper field, which is not exactly on the upper campgrounds, but up the dirt road quite a ways, and into the bush another five minutes' walk. Altogether, probably a twenty-minute walk from the main campground. In the middle of my slumber I was suddenly awakened by a loud, deep shrieking, squealing sound that I had never heard before. I sat up in my tent, alarmed and uncertain of what I had heard. I thought maybe it was one of my colleagues playing a trick on me, and the other two counselors who were camped up there alone for the night, or one of the other two for that matter. This being a camp full of staff who are well known for their pranks, I wouldn't have put it past them. Then I heard the noise again. It was even louder. At first I thought it was a skunk being attacked by coyotes or something. I have heard that sound before and witnessed it, for those who don't know, skunks actually make a sort of shrieking, squealing sound when being mauled to death. I saw it firsthand, but that is another story altogether. Editor's Note All mustilidae, such as wolverines, weasels, badgers, civet cats, skunks, and otters, etc., emit a loud to groaning squeal or high-rolling shriek, often sounding like a woman in hopeless distress when caught by predators or in iron-set traps. The sound can be very loud and unnerving, even from a wounded rabbit. However, the sound was much deeper. Then, just as it had come, the sound stopped. I lay awake for the rest of the night, barely moving a muscle. When morning came, and the sun was bright enough, I slowly came out of my tent and walked to the main campground for breakfast. A few minutes later, the other two counselors came down to the main camp and gave me a mysterious glance. Then one of them approached and asked me, Was that you making all that racket last night? You scared poor Dave half to death. I just looked at him and said, What racket? With a stone-cold look. He gave me a knowing look and walked away. We never discussed it after that and no one mentioned pulling a prank on me or the other two that night. Sooner or later, everyone owned up to their pranks, but no one even mentioned this one at all. It was not until months later that I realized what I may have heard. I was watching a documentary on TV about Bigfoot, and a crew hunting the evasive being had recorded what they thought were mating calls of the mysterious creature. When I heard the sounds of the recording come from the TV, the memories of that night came back to me. I quickly sat up, eyes glued to the screen, and the hairs on my neck stood up again. It sounded almost identical. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Again. My next encounter was two years later, 1998, in August, again. It was late August, and there were no more cubs for the remainder of the summer, so the designated cub field and its cabins were vacant. So, not having much to do and no kids to watch, I decided to sleep in the cub field with the rest of the staff who had no children to take care of. The cub field is exactly that. It is a large clearing in the middle of dense forest, 
up yet another hill. It is probably 150 yards wide and probably 200 to 250 yards long, with a row of small cabins on either side. While I laid in bed in one of the cabins, I woke a little after 12 o'clock a.m. I don't know why, but I was just suddenly awake. In the distance, I heard what I thought was howling, but I wasn't exactly sure. It sounded kind of muffled, but I was used to that sort of thing. I looked over at one of the other counselors staying in my cabin that night, and he was fast asleep. Then, out of nowhere, I heard what I thought was someone running right by my cabin. The steps were heavy and quick. I shot out of bed, grabbing my flashlight, wondering who was running around at this hour, since everyone was supposed to be in bed hours ago. I swung the door of the cabin open and shone my flashlight in the field. I couldn't believe what I saw next. About forty feet away, diagonally from me, I saw a large, hairy creature walking across the field very swiftly. I stood there in shock, wondering what my eyes were seeing. This thing was absolutely enormous. At first I thought it might be a bear, but then realized something. It was walking upright, on two legs. It was very tall, bulky, and had dark brown hair covering its entire body. Then, as if noticing my flashlight, it stopped, turned, and looked at me. I could see the yellow reflection of its eyes and its face. The face seemed to be almost half-human, half-ape-like, having little hair on its face, but the skin was almost the same color as its hair, a sort of light brownish color. It stood there, looking at me, and I at it, for what seemed like an eternity, but was probably more like a few seconds. I wanted to scream. I wanted to wake up the others, but I was frozen. I was caught up in the phenomenon that I was seeing and couldn't move. That's when I noticed the smell. It was such a rancid odor, I had to plug my nose to save from puking. Then the creature turned and began to continue its swift movement across the field, and in a matter of seconds... It was across the field, walked between two cabins and into the dense forest. It was when it walked between the two cabins that I realized how tall this being was. I am six foot tall, without standing on my tiptoes. I can reach approximately to the seven foot four inch mark. This thing, as it walked between the two cabins, was taller than where the top one of the doors is. The cabins are elevated off the ground. From standing on the ground, I cannot touch the top of one of the doors. I am a couple of inches shy of it. I checked the next day. I would estimate that this thing was probably around eight feet tall, or close to it. Again, I lay awake for the remainder of the night, my hatchet by my side. This was the scenario for many of the remaining nights of that summer before I went home. There were even sleepless nights afterwards while at home. I didn't think I was afraid of anything until that night. I tried searching for tracks the next day, but to no avail. I couldn't find anything. The next day I asked one of the head counselors if there were any large animals in the general area, such as bears, and he said, no. Apparently, 
There were no bears for miles and miles. I never mentioned anything about what I saw that night. I didn't want anyone to think that I was crazy. I thought I would just wait and see if anyone else mentioned something before I said anything. No one did. My last encounter was the following and my final year, yet again in August. I don't know why I went back after all of the nightmares and sleepless nights from the previous summer. I guess I thought it was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. This time... I had taken a rowboat out onto the lake with a lady friend whom I had met that summer. Yes, there are female staff at scout camps. The main beach for the camp is in a small inlet of the lake, almost like a sort of small bay, before it opens up. As I was taking her on our romantic moonlight row, as I was taking her out on our romantic moonlight row, I heard what I thought was somebody whistling at me. I stopped rowing. She didn't hear it, but I know I did. I looked around at the surrounding shoreline and didn't see anything. Next, I heard a splash. A little one, as if someone had thrown a rock into the water. I thought maybe another couple was somewhere along that shore. I grabbed my flashlight. She grabbed hers. We scanned the shore from the safety of our boat to see if we could spot them. We were scanning in different sections. Then I saw them. Those eyes. The yellow reflection. I focused in on them, and they had an eerie resemblance to the ones I had seen the year before. Do you see them? I heard her ask. Without looking away, I said, No. You? No, she replied. What is that? Referring to the eyes caught in my light. A deer? She asked. Yeah, probably, I said. But I knew better. Then the eyes were gone. We then agreed that there was probably another couple out there, and we didn't want to get busy in front of other people. So I turned the boat around, and we went back to the camp. I have kept these secrets with me for five-plus years now. This is one thing I can honestly say I haven't told a single soul until now. I will never forget what I've seen and heard. Although there was no physical contact, I have been extremely traumatized from what I've experienced. All this has been put in the back of my mind until now, probably because there was a show on this Discovery Channel about Sasquatch today. Like I said before, it still makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. This is the end of the eight stories. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This collection of three stories is being brought to you by William Jeffning, and is being narrated by Jim Sower. These stories come to us from California. The first is Eureka, California, 1896. The second is Sasquatch and the Edwards Air Force Base. And the third, Mysterious Shaver Lake. Story number one. Eureka, California, 1896. Interesting old story. In 1965, my mother's friend, an old deer from near Sacramento, showed her a letter. 
It was transcribed by her daughter, who found some of the usage and language amusing, and she presented it to her grammar school class. No one knows where the original is. It was found pressed into the pages of an old dictionary, but has since been lost or misplaced. Enjoy it. If you use it in your publication, please just refer to me as Jack. I enjoy the fruits of your research and wish you many, many years of success in your endeavor. Regards, Jack, Lakota Sioux, Guide, Outfitter, Guide in our great Northwest. A few weeks back, my friend Jake McCoy and I were in witness to the following of accounts. We were well spent after an uncommon day of awful heat cutting timber. Our days in these woods were usually of a cool and foggy nature, with the heat rarely becoming to our discomfort. After our supper, Jake and I were of a mind to sit by the creek. With the next day being Sunday, we were able to enjoy an evening of our own doings. We were smoking and having coffee when we smelt something like a dead animal left to rot in the heat. I remember once coming upon a shot bear that his hunter could not trail, and it had laid and rotted for four days, by my opinion. It gave an awful stench, which would give many a disagreeable stomach. This scent was in similarity to that. We saw nothing out of the expected, but could hear a rustling in the brush just across the creek, being August, the creek was not more than four or five goodly strides from this bank across. A man could start to a run and jump fully across it, if he were determined of doing so. We saw a large man coming through the trees, and Jake stood up and asked what in creation it was. As I had just been looking towards the sun, my eyes did not give a clear viewing of what it was. I rubbed my eyes to have a look, and I was not in knowledge of what I saw. It appeared to be a bear at first, but we had not seen any bears in this area, and it walked as a man would on its two legs. If it was a man, he was covered with a dark hair, and long like the mane of a horse, and it was dark brown in color. Jake yelled out, Who goes there? But this man-beast did not make a response. It stopped in its tracks and looked at us from a distance of about seventy paces. We stood, but were froze as we wondered of the type of creature we were in witness to. After just a moment or two, it turned and walked back up the hill in great long strides and with unexpected ease and swiftness. We heard it climb up the hill, and then all was silent. We noticed it walk for twenty or so paces, all of them upright. It had arms like a man's, but of a much bigger size, and greater length than a man's. It must have been of great strength, as we determined it to be greater in height than seven feet. We said nothing to our supervisors, as loafing and insubordination would get you off and looking for employment in other parts. Too many men wanted too little work. So, saying anything that would attract attention to yourself in a manner not deemed proper was not born of a good idea. However, an Indian named Joe, 
who frequented our camp to vend his wares, had told of a mountain giant uncommon to these woods. I explained what we saw, and he said his people often saw these giants. However, he said that most would see them in late night or darkness. The giants did not care to be seen, and were quiet and careful to be hidden. Joe said that he could find tracks all along the creeks and rivers of a morning. I swear the events written here is the truth, and happened with us being of a sound mind and in sobriety. L. T. Mills, 19 August of 1896, Eureka, California, as dictated to L. B. Small, clerk. This ends the reading of the first story. This next story is entitled Sasquatch and the Edwards Air Force Base Surveillance, written by Doug Trapp. The sun dropped quickly behind the desert rock piles, revealing a deep red glow to the western sky, as Corey Rudolph and I made camp at the east end of Avenue J in Palmdale one spring night in 1977. We had been visiting the area as often as possible in response to several credible Bigfoot reports in this California desert. To the east was nothing but dark black sky with thousands of stars and periodic meteors whizzing by. Our objective was twofold. One, to observe all we could during the night, and two, to get away from the Los Angeles rat race. We had been driving through the areas north of the mountains, separating the Los Angeles area from the desert, in search of clues and people to interview who claimed to have encountered the desert Sasquatch. Through the next three years, Corey and I, and sometimes myself with my faithful red-tailed hawk, Nixon, we gathered as much information on desert Sasquatch activity as we could. In many cases, the witnesses told very similar tales of large, hair-covered, man-like apes observed crossing the highway, or looking in their windows at their homes, usually after midnight. Through these witnesses, we slowly became aware that the military, just north of Lancaster, California, at Edwards Air Force Base, had been witness to these desert man-beasts for several years. We finally made contact with three different military security officers, all of which did not know of the others, who provided us with information relating to what the Air Force knew about these animals. Before I continue with this, I must inform the reader that these three men were willing to discuss this with us only because we promised to never reveal their names or ranks, and if we did, they would deny everything. Because I believe in keeping promises, I will comply with their request, but will refer to them only by rank, since I do not believe that their status at the time would indicate or reveal their true identity, thereby keeping my promise. I will also add that I have spoken to five additional ex-military officers who were once stationed at Edwards Air Force Base, and they all claim that what the first three revealed was accurate, and that not much has changed there since the 1970s. The first I interviewed was a lieutenant in charge of security in the sector of Edwards Air Force Base 
near Rogers Dry Lake. He was primarily responsible for supervising the surveillance activity from sunset to sundown from 1972 to 1975 when he was then transferred to Germany, then retired. This gentleman explained to me that the base security was primarily involved with monitoring for unauthorized entry to the base by curious seekers. The base was highly involved with classified secret aircraft testing at the time, and there were many curious people trying to take photos or just see these things. In addition, the base had a very high level of UFO activity, or as he put it, alien spacecraft. In fact, he made it clear that these craft were not from Earth, and that the Air Force knew very little about them. When any unauthorized people or alien aircraft entered his perimeter, he was to report it to the higher command, and observe. All of his personnel had top security clearance, and were to discuss nothing of what they saw. He further described some of these craft to me, but I was not very interested at the time. While they were conducting surveillance one night, always using starlight scopes and motion detectors spread throughout the base, one of the guards reported an infiltration in his perimeter. When asked for details, the guard described a very tall man, but not really a man. Perplexed by such a report, he decided to drive to the location and talk to the guard, perhaps thinking the man had lost his marbles. When he arrived, a wide-eyed guard met him and repeated his story. The lieutenant began to scan the desert for the intruder and soon spied him, or it. Through the starlight scope, he could clearly see that this was not a man. It was a very tall, hair-covered, ape-like man walking through the desert. He said the animal appeared to be looking at the desert floor in search of something. The animal was about 500 yards distant, but the scope was very powerful and tripod-mounted, so it could be observed clearly. Both men continued to observe the animal as it wandered around almost aimlessly. He then reported to his superiors of the activity and was told to keep the animal in sight. This was no problem as the animal remained in the area. About five minutes later, a helicopter was heard approaching the area. Then it was seen coming in fast from the east. They continued to observe the animal, which continued its activity. The helicopter came in over a rock pile, then the animal spooked. It looked at the helicopter, turned, and ran like a deer around a rock pile and out of sight. The helicopter searched the area, but never found the animal. The two men could hardly believe what they had seen. The next day, the lieutenant reported to the command post of the previous night's activity. The command told him that these animals had been seen on the base before, and the public knew them as Bigfoot or Sasquatch. The command explained that they were concerned that these animals may be related to the alien craft, and that all such reports must remain top secret. He was told to continue to observe and report, but not to intervene or disturb the animals until the command determined what they were. The lieutenant had heard of Bigfoot before. 
but not in the desert. He had always thought that this was some sort of fable or hoax. But he knew what he saw, and now knew that they were real. Through the following years, he and his crew observed the Sasquatches on the base several times. By 1975, they had sophisticated equipment, including video surveillance cameras mounted in key areas. He then explained to me that they had videotaped these animals several times, but the tapes were classified and held under top security at all times. By the time he left Edwards, they had learned very little about these creatures, but his feeling was that they were not UFO-related, but biological living beings. The second officer I interviewed was a major before he too retired in 1978. He had served at Edwards Air Force Base from 1970 through 1978 and was in charge of one of the command posts on the north end of the base. He too explained that they were primarily interested in UFOs and aliens. In fact, it was through his words that I first heard the term EBE, which is apparently the military term for aliens or extraterrestrial biological entities. It is only in recent years that this term has been coined in UFO books relating to the military UFO cover-up. In any case, the Major confirmed what the Lieutenant had told me, but added that these creatures also found their way into the secret underground tunnels that run under Edwards. Although the use and existence of these tunnels was classified, he told me about them knowing that their importance was a moot subject to me. He said that they had surveillance cameras in the tunnels and had, in fact, videotaped the Sasquatches as they wandered through them. He said that they were not concerned with the Sasquatches on the base because they had learned that they were not related to EBE activity and that they were certain that they were simply undiscovered animals. When I asked why they had not captured or killed one in order to prove the existence to the world, he returned that they could not reveal anything that happened on the base. He said that if they were to admit that these creatures often wandered around on the base, the public would lose confidence in their ability to keep the base secure. This, in turn, would give people the idea that they could do the same. Since there was so much secret work continuing on the base, it was not in their interest to discuss the Sasquatches with the public. They wanted to keep people out, not encourage them to visit in search of Sasquatches. They already had enough problems with UFO seekers or those wanting to get a peek at the secret aircraft. The third man was a security grunt that is, what he termed himself. He claimed to have seen these desert Sasquatches through starlight scopes on scores of occasions. This man was only about 19 years old, but extremely military in his self-presence. He called me, Sir, until I asked him not to. He told me that he had seen a couple of Sasquatches that stood over 10 feet high, had seen obvious females, one with a young one walking with her, and once saw a group of five Sasquatches walking together, all over six feet tall, with the tallest about eight feet tall. They were fully hair-covered, except the palms of their hands, and the base of their feet, and their face. 
He said their face resembled an ape with very small eyes, a flat nose, and ape-like lips. The arms were long and slung down to their knees. He said their feet were like ours, without an arch, as they had tracked them through the desert several times. When I asked him about the surveillance videos, he told me that he knew of them, but was not involved in that. He said only officers were allowed to videotape the creatures or UFOs. Cameras were not allowed on the base in the hands of the grunts. He said that he felt very privileged to have seen these animals with such clarity because he knew there were several like himself that would do anything to see one. However, he suggested that these animals were not as rare as people assumed, but they are very shy and almost strictly nocturnal. They could be photographed, given the right opportunity, but those opportunities were rare because these creatures are very good at remaining concealed, even in the desert. He told me that the reason they were on the base was that they knew that they would not be harmed. He thought that somehow they could feel danger or even pick up on human thoughts. Since the officers and grunts on Edwards were ordered not to harm or intervene with the creatures, they could feel this vibe and felt protected. Some of these animals, of course, wander around outside of the base, but these animals are always watching their backs, he explained. To conclude this report, I should advise that several sources have told me in recent years that the desert Sasquatches are still being watched at Edwards Air Force Base. In fact, one officer recently told me that the base security actually appreciates the presence of the Sasquatch there since they give the officers some needed entertainment. Then a question came to mind. Could the EBEs be just as interested in the Sasquatches as they are of other base activities? The officer stopped for a moment, thinking, then said simply, Perhaps. Written by Douglas E. Trapp, Dallas, Texas. This ends the second reading. This brings us to the last of the three stories. Mysterious Shaver Lake, Fresno County, California. Many sightings, four in summer 2012. Additional sightings occurred in September and other updates. Sierra Range, June 2012, around 9 o'clock p.m. Not quite sure how to type this, 9 o'clock p.m., stone sober. While driving, I saw up to my right, illuminated only for a couple seconds, as I was towing downhill in a corner turn doing 15 miles per hour, what I believe to fit all descriptions of a Bigfoot. But as I turned the corner, I lost sight. What I saw with the time that I had was half a stride, pause, look and turn, and beginning to stride away. If it wasn't a Bigfoot, then it was a slim bear striding around on his rear legs with all the dimensions of Bigfoot, or maybe a seven-foot-tall, 400-pound ex-football player playing with scaring people, and he got me for a minute or two. In my mind, a lot taller than a man, 
and his bulk was proportional to Bigfoot's. No way for it to be anything else. I know my shapes. The area was hilly, located at the end of Highway 168. Four-lane highway, next down to two lanes. Small plateau type. Small meadow. Above roadway elevation is 3,000 or so. I notified no rangers. June 24th, 2012. The aforementioned report prompted this response. A woman reported that her daughter's boyfriend had a sighting in the region of Shaver Lake. In part, she reported, he saw the Bigfoot in his headlights, crouched down next to the road. As he hit his brakes and came to almost a full stop, the Bigfoot stood up straight, strolled off, then ran up the hill and into the trees. He had an unobstructed view for about five to ten seconds. He is a mountain resident that has hunted bear and swore unequivocally that it was not a bear or a man in a suit. It was huge, with a huge chest and did not move like a man, and that its strides were very long. I believe that he is telling the truth. He is just not a BS kind of guy that would make this up. His mom reported that he called her almost hysterical over what he saw. Saturday, June 30th, 2012. Carla and Manuel M. filed a report that was not a physical sighting. While honeymooning at a rental cabin on Shaver Lake, California, they heard vocalizations being emitted from one side of the lake to the other. Manny M. wrote that the sounds were whoops, like whoop, 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 in a series of three sets that started on one side of the lake and then returned whoop, whoop, whoop from the other side of the lake. This went on for several hours after midnight, three nights in a row. On their last night there, Carla woke Manny up and ushered him out onto their bedroom porch that was overlooking the lake. The two of them heard a baby crying that lasted three or four minutes. The sound was that of an infant, and it was a frantic cry, and very loud, echoing across the lake. It also emanated from deep within the forest area on the opposite side of Shaver Lake. As they returned to their bedroom, the whoops started up again. Carla said it was very creepy, and that it prevented them from exploring the rocky terrain and much of the lakefront while they honeymooned there. Wednesday, July 11, 2012. Two forestry workers for Southern California Edison, the company that owns Shaver Lake, stopped to eat their lunch on the banks of Shaver Lake. As they were getting up to head back to their utility truck, parked on the frontageway of Highway 168, they both stopped cold as a reddish-colored Bigfoot walked out of the trees and into the lake. One of the witnesses who filed the report said his visual was too quick to accurately judge its height other than to say it was a pretty big fella with a heavy coat of tangled-like-looking hair all over. He said it surfaced and swam toward the eastern side in what looked like a very strong dog-paddle kind of stroke. He was really moving. The two men stood there dumbfounded as the Bigfoot swam out of sight.
Additional sighting, 2009. The SCE informant in the above report said that when he mentioned the sighting to his daughter's music teacher, she related another story told to her that took place also at Shaver Lake in 2009. In any case, it was a second-hand report that told of three campers who were driven out of their tents in the middle of the night by a screaming Mimi that unstaked their tents and attempted to drag them off, tent and all, into the night somewhere. They fled for their lives and did report it to forestry the next day. It was also reported on the Internet. Not sure where. The informant was asked if he knew what the forestry official did, and he said apparently nothing, and indicated they were either mistaken or it was a bear. The music teacher had said, though, we know black bears do not behave that way, and we have no grizzlies in California. It leaves one to wonder what there is left in the forest that would rip up the tent stakes and heave tents with people inside around the campsite. Bears just don't behave that way. Of interest in that story was that the campers kept a high campfire going at night and that the fire did not deter the attack by the Sasquatches. The music teacher said there were two of them, maybe even a third, but nobody stuck around to find out. This isn't the first recording of a campsite attack. The other was in Colorado in the San Juan Mountains. But around Shaver Lake and nearby communities, everyone has a story to tell about Bigfoot. Shaver Lake History Surrounding Areas The cast of Finding Bigfoot television series was in Shaver Lake in March of 2012, interviewing witnesses in a town hall meeting event. At that meeting, Ken Gentry said his group had a huge rock hurled at them from 300 feet away, on the top of a ridge, and saw it as it was launched. They were hiking near three rivers, not far from Shaver Lake area. It was a very large rock. One of the athletic guys on our crew, Billy, picked it up and tried to throw it, but he couldn't throw it even 25 feet. If I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I would have had a hard time believing it actually happened, Gentry said. October 2012. Three middle-aged men go missing near Shaver Lake region. A backpacker. His car was found near Shaver Lake, and a second hiker went missing in the general area of the Sierra National Park, where there were three or more separate Bigfoot sightings summer of 2012. Two hikers were found, but Larry Kahn, 53, is still missing. 11.6.12. Another sighting contains a lengthy bunch of extraneous information about the surroundings and little about three large cinnamon brown humanoid figures that moved through a stand of spruce trees. The nearest town? Shaver Lake. Shaver Lake Small Town Magazine filed this article, written by Jolene Polyak, in the summer, fall of 2012. Jolene attended the Shaver Lake Town Hall meeting. Southeast of Shaver Lake is great deer hunting, according to Bruce Decova, 51, and his hunting partner, Samuel Broderick, 46, from out of state. It is an area south of Huntington Lake, just short of Dinky Creek, 
off to the eastern rim of Shaver Lake. In late 2009, the two men went looking for a prime place to set up for the hunting season. In the process, Broderick was taking an armload of firewood to the nearby fire pit when he noticed not one but two dark figures in the trees. He continued toward the fire ring, dumped the firewood, and put his hand on Dakova's shoulder, whispering to him not to be obvious but to look in that direction when he could. He whispered that they were being watched by what he thought might be a couple of Bigfoot. Dakova, a veteran trophy hunter, had heard such stories but thought Bigfoot was imagined. He went about setting up their tent and then cleaned off his Ray-Ban sunglasses so he could look around without his eyes giving him away. Sure enough, there were two very tall individuals watching them, not thirty-five feet from where he was staking the tent. The pounding of the stakes echoed in the trees, but there were no other sounds to be heard. The Bigfoot made no noise. Dakova turned at that point and told Broderick that he also could see them and was amazed. To break the tension, Dakova yelled over to Broderick, do they understand English? Broderick broke into a nervous laughter like, <laughs> and began nervously singing the state fight song. Dakova joined in as they edged toward the rifles laying on the ground. For his part, Broderick was admittedly nervous and hurriedly reached down to unzip the cover off his rifle and loaded it just in case the two creatures came into camp. Apparently, when Broderick raised up the rifle to load it, both Sasquatch departed. The two hunters told me they did not see the creatures again or notice anything unusual during the night. There were no screams and no rock-throwing, and none of the usual nighttime Bigfoot antics reported by other hunters. The description of the two Bigfoot was minimal. They were in the eight-foot range, according to the height of the trees where they stood, and dark in color. Otherwise, no additional details were given. Rob Janus The behavior of the Shaver Lake Dinky Creek watchers was decidedly different from most reports from hunters, in that the two Sasquatch apparently knew what the rifle meant, even though the two hunters did not acknowledge their presence. There are reports of vocalizations in that region, and a number of recent sightings of varying color description making Janus conclude that there might be a diverse population in that region. Janus also noted in his report that neither Broderick nor Dakova bagged a deer that trip. In fact, Broderick said he never spotted one, and even that was unusual. Update, December 29, 2012 Mosmanko 253 wrote December 28, 2012, that he and his girlfriend were riding around looking at property in the Shaver Lake area when they decided to pull over and break out sandwiches at the dead end of Dorabella Road. He looked up as the woman with him cried out, Look! Look! and saw a very strange sight. Heading back into the far side of the trees, was a man in a furry costume. He didn't report it because he thought it was a joke until he read this page and decided to report it 
as a possible Bigfoot sighting that occurred on September 15, 2012. In hindsight, the witness said what he thought was a man in a costume was much too tall to be a joke. This was about 12.30 on Saturday afternoon. We were parked, eating chicken sandwiches and sharing a Diet Pepsi when this happened. My lady friend didn't think it was a costume, but some kind of creature, because the furry part was reddish and long fur down his back and not like a hooded costume. If this was a Bigfoot the couple saw... It brings the sighting total around Shaver Lake to 5 in 2012. Update. Shaver Lake missing hiker Larry Kahn, a Los Angeles-based attorney who worked at Pasinelli Shugart, has not been found as of this date, March 31, 2013. The search for the resident of Pacific Palisades was suspended in November 2012. After no trace of the man was found, other than his car. Update. Hiker Matthew Hansen has been found, but no details. A report came in January 2013, but the sighting took place back in 1998. A cabin owner near Shaver Lake, California, reported hearing a pack of coyotes yipping and chirping away at something. Walking over to his window, he saw Bigfoot carrying some kind of large feathered bird in its hand, walking up the road towards his place on Sweetgrass Road. The coyotes were jumping up, trying to bite whatever it was the creature was carrying. He called to his wife and son, and they also saw it as it walked off through the trees, down a dirt trail, which was later paved. R.C. 1998 This concludes the reading of the three stories. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then... Keep your eyes open out there.